perhaps because teachers as a profession have not felt particularly supported by the government or particularly valued by the media or parts of the media over the last year, they've created a sort of a, a unity around themselves that's given them um, a, a strength, which I think is really exciting to see. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello listeners, whoever and wherever you are. Welcome to episode 14 of the Rethinking Education podcast. The last episode with Ian Gilbert has prompted some lovely responses and some lively debate online. Here are a few selected highlights. On Twitter, Joel Bevans wrote, What is a thunk and what does a thunk do? It develops thinking and allows students to uncover complexity, uncertainty and supports the ability to change our minds. Currently listening and learning with Ian Gilbert on the inspiring Rethinking Education podcast. On the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, James Micklebust Hampshire wrote, This is a fantastic episode. Such a contrast to the previous one with Adam Boxer, in that instead of focusing on continuing to do what education has done for the last however many years, he discussed the true purpose of education and how we should think about complexity. Loved it. Catherine Pratt agreed, saying that her head was buzzing after listening to it. And finally, on Twitter again, Ollie Lovell noted a fascinating paradox. Ollie recently interviewed Doug Lamov of Teach Like a Champion fame on the ERRR podcast, in which he said, Efficiency is the most underrated word in education. In the podcast with Ian Gilbert, he said, Efficiency is the enemy of education. There's a thunk for you, Ollie tweeted. Dan Rodriguez-Clark agreed and responded, I think that this difference of opinion gets to the heart of so many arguments about education. Following Ollie's tweet, I challenged Ian to formulate this paradox as a thunk. He immediately offered a few suggestions. For example, do you learn more when you fail than by getting it right first time? Do you need to fail in order to learn? Are we defined more by our failures than our successes? And is efficiency more important for the teacher than the learner? There are so many fascinating questions, listeners. If you would like to engage in debates like these, why not join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network? You can do so by visiting rethinking-education.mn.co or by downloading the Mighty Network's app and searching for Rethinking Education. And if you're a new listener to the show, I would urge you to go back and listen to the previous episodes. Everyone really is a winner. And now to today's guest. I'm particularly excited to bring you this week's episode for a number of reasons. Rachel McFarlane is the Director of Education Services at Hearts for Learning, providing the strategic lead for all education services to schools and across all phases. That's Hearts as in Hertfordshire, by the way, which is the county just north of London for any international listeners. One of the reasons I found this conversation so fascinating is that, like me, Rachel is a keen learning-to-learner, and she's someone who's taken the ideas of Guy Claxton and Bill Lucas and Carol Dweck and others and really brought them to life in a way that has had an incredible, demonstrable impact on the lives of young people. For example, prior to joining Hearts for Learning, Rachel was the principal of Isaac Newton Academy in Ilford in the London borough of Redbridge. 
She opened this non-selective all-through academy for 4- to 18-year-olds in 2012. The school was rated outstanding by Ofsted when it was inspected in 2014, and when they received their first set of results in 2017, they went straight into the top 1% of schools in the country. In this conversation, Rachel talks in detail about how she achieved such incredible outcomes. Prior to this, Rachel held successful headship positions at the Walthamstow School for Girls for seven years and at the Francis Bacon School in St Albans. Alongside her headship experience, Rachel has been extensively involved in leading school improvement programmes and system leadership both in primary and secondary phases. She joined the London Leadership Strategy in 2007 as a consultant headteacher, supporting new headteachers through the London Leadership Strategy's Moving to New Headship programme. In 2009, Rachel set up Going for Great, now a flagship program designed for leaders of outstanding primary, secondary, mainstream and special schools to continue to develop and learn from each other and support the schools around them. Listeners to previous episodes may be aware of a new pressure group that has appeared in recent months in the UK, Rethinking Assessment, which is doing a fantastic job of opening up an urgent and necessary conversation around how we might reform our assessment system, especially the GCSE, to create something a little more, well, you can insert your own adjective here, ethical, fit for purpose, humane, that will probably do. Well, Rachel is a part of this Rethinking Assessment group, and she has many fascinating things to share about who's in that group, what they're hoping to achieve, and how it's all going. Rachel has also recently written a fantastic book about how to close the disadvantage gap called Obstetrics for Schools. Obstetrics, in case you aren't aware, is the field of medicine concerned with pre- and postnatal care. Since the invention of obstetrics, the infant mortality rate has decreased by several orders of magnitude. In the book, Rachel makes a compelling case that if we can import some of this thinking into education, maybe we can do the same for the disadvantage gap, and perhaps even get beyond the point where one third of young people leave school after 12 years branded a failure. To conclude this introduction to a truly fascinating guest, here are a few of the really quite astonishing things people have written about Rachel's book, which comes out later this month, by the way. Jeff Barton, the General Secretary of the Association for School and College Leaders, wrote... Obstetrics for Schools takes a bleak account of poverty, disadvantage and underachievement and, using real-life case studies and data, shows that it doesn't have to be like this. If ever there were a time to recalibrate our education system around equity, it's now. If ever there were a book to help us do it, it's this one. Which is quite a compelling quote, hey? The next quote comes from a good friend of the podcast, Guy Claxton, who writes... It is a disgrace that we can accept that a third of our children will fail at school. Such a rate of attrition and such inequity is no longer tolerated in childbirth and it should not be tolerated in schools. Medicine has developed robust procedures to make sure this doesn't happen. But where are the equivalents in education? Thankfully, they are right here in Rachel McFarlane's brilliant Obstetrics for Schools. Wise, passionate, compassionate, and above all, practical, this book is an intimate guide to reducing the poverty gap in education. Every headteacher, administrator, and minister of education should read it and be judged on their responses to it. If this doesn't happen, it will only show that we as a society still don't really care, and that intellectual and ethical torpor still rule the roost. 
Guy not mincing his words there. And the final quote comes from Lucy Heller, the chief executive of ARC, which is the academy chain that Rachel worked for at the aforementioned Isaac Newton Academy. She writes, Rachel McFarlane's book is exactly what we all need right now. The perfect antidote to COVID-19 gloom is a stirring call to arms in the fight against education inequality. Rachel counters the defeatist acceptance that the education system will inevitably fail some students and, through a series of case studies, shows how it's possible to ensure that every student receives a great education. Accessible, practical and inspiring, Obstetrics for Schools is a great read for anyone who cares about education. This idea that it doesn't have to be this way is something that I feel really strongly about and I recently gave a talk for the London Ed Conference called How to Close the Disadvantage Gap which was partly inspired by the conversation that I had with Rachel and if you want to see that talk or to see the slide and the Twitter thread that goes with it it's the pinned tweet on my account if you visit Rethinking James on Twitter. I don't think that there's much more that I can say at this point to underscore the incredible contribution that Rachel has made and continues to make to practice and theory around education in this country and around the world. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the show. Rachel McFarlane, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you. Um, I, I saw a, a conversation that you had recently with Guy Claxton and Bill Lucas. Um, and I know that you've been very immersed in the world of learning to learn for a long time, as have I. And it's really nice. I mean, there's there's lots of things that I want to talk to you about, the rethinking, rethinking assessment thing that you've been involved in and many other things. Um, but I'm really excited to speak to a fellow learning to learner um, especially somebody who has really achieved some great success in this field because you've you know the schools that you've been running have, have had incredible results and that's not universally the case with learning to learn learning to learn has had quite a sort of a rocky history so it'll be really I'm really looking forward to, to exchanging notes so can we start with that I wonder if you could go back to just the beginning of your way where you sort of first became aware of learning to learn and where that fitted in within your uh, teaching career Absolutely. I can remember it really clearly. I was a head teacher in a school in St Albans um, and I was invited to a head teachers conference and Guy Claxton was the keynote speaker. It must have been about 2003. And it was a really important moment for me because listening to him present, and he's a very articulate, persuasive speaker, as you know, I just suddenly realised that the way in which I'd been teaching history for many years, um, getting students to really embrace the, the, the skills, um, not just to sort of focus on the content and to develop them as learners, was the way in which I ought to be leading um, as a head teacher. And that, you know, the, the, the key to sort of crack um, attainment was to create a culture in the school and empower the adults in the school to be empowering the, the learners to be effective, independent learners, self-regulating their learning journey. Um, and he peppered his talk with so many um, inspiring examples of how practitioners had transformed their teaching and the learning environment right through from primary schools to special schools to secondary schools, that I just became determined to learn more about uh, the learning powered approach um, and to 
to lead a school where I could implement that myself. And at the time, I just secured another headship of an 11 to 16 girls school in Walthamstow in East London. And it struck me that that was going to be an ideal testbed to trial a learning powered approach. It was a, a very um, secure, well-established school with a great reputation for progressive education for girls. It had really strong examination results. It had a very stable staff who were confident in their pedagogy. But it was probably on the traditional end of the spectrum. And I could see that it had the capacity to um, to, to be updated and for learners to achieve even more and for the learning environment to be even more vibrant and exciting. Um, so I, I turned up at the school on my first day and gave a keynote talk to the staff and decided that, you know, it, it needed to be right from the beginning that I laid my cards on the table and said that I had this vision that the school would become a learning powered school. And, you know, this is how I thought it, it might look and, and what the learning powered approach was all about. And I was really interested in seeing whether there was any appetite to discuss um, the ideas of Claxton and, and, and his um, compatriots. Uh, and I, I sort of approached it with a degree of trepidation because obviously I didn't know the staff. I didn't know whether there'd be an appetite for this type of um, pedagogical approach. And I um, invited anybody interested to come to a meeting one lunchtime in my office about a week later and said that in the meantime, people might be interested in dipping into uh, one of the books, which was one of Guy's early learning power approach um, books, a relatively um, uh, 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 approachable book. It wasn't a kind of great weighty tome, but nonetheless, it required a little bit of engagement and, and pre-reading. And I had no idea as I waited that lunchtime for people to knock on the door. I had no idea whether I'd get one or three or six people attending. And I remember it really clearly because um, person after person sort of came through the door and I had a pretty large uh, palatial office. It was a beautiful learning environment, um, my office at Walthamstow Girls. Um, and it had a, a big sofa and probably about eight chairs around a, a lovely sort of glass conference table. And within about two minutes, every single space had been taken up. There were people sitting on top of each other on the sofa, on the arms of the sofa, all the chairs were occupied, standing room only. And what was lovely was that people came in with really well-thumbed copies of the book, little post notes in and annotations, and they clearly really engaged and there were a group of about 20 of us who from that day onwards formed a working group which gradually over time trialed learning powered approaches in classrooms um, and it was a very much a ground up um, development where it, it was low threat, low stakes, um, a, a sort of invitational approach to trialing things. No, no problem if things went wrong. Um, you know, maths teachers saying, why don't you pop in and just see what I'm doing on Friday afternoon? I've no idea if this is going to be a car crash or whether it's going to work and be something interesting and exciting. Um, and, and we just gradually over the period of about a year, um, introduced elements of the learning powered approach at staff meetings and training and invited more and more people to come on board and get involved in whatever way they felt comfortable doing until we felt we got to a stage where we could pilot a learning powered approach to coaching and tutoring with our new year seven so we introduced it sort of bottom up a new cohort at a time um, and it just became infectious you know more and more people came on board um, and more and more key members of staff really revolutionized what they were doing within their pastoral teams or their subject teams or their um, operational staff teams because we had a lot of um, teachers who uh, staff who weren't teachers involved in in the movement and it grew over time 
So over the next seven years of being a head teacher there, um, the school became more and more immersed in building learning power, as we called it in those days. And Guy visited from time to time and inspired and motivated and um, and helped us and supported us. He acted as a cheerleader and a problem solver when we hit brick walls or didn't quite know where to go next or, um, or, or which of two options to take. And then um, in 2011, I secured a new headship with the opportunity to open a brand new school just down the road in Ilford. Um, and I had the wonderful experience of a year to set up the school. And by that point, I'd become so convinced that a learning powered approach was the bedrock that was needed to really ensure that every child could reach their full potential, that it was a no brainer that we were going to have a learning powered approach to the way that we did education at, at my new school, Isaac Newton Academy. And I had the opportunity to read a huge amount of research and to visit um, leaders of different uh, schools, both in the UK and um, in the US, that had introduced elements of um, learning powered approaches, focusing on learning dispositions, but also focusing on character traits. Um, so I visited some of the um, uncommon schools and charter schools in New York. And I devised a framework, again, with some um, support and encouragement from Guy and others, that would be the foundations of, of what we um, what we did as educators at Isaac Newton Academy, which was a, a nice sort of play on a, a quote from Isaac Newton, where he allegedly said, we build too many walls and not enough bridges. And we decided to call our framework the Bridges Framework, um, with the idea that a learning powered approach really supports the learner to traverse from one learning challenge to another, one phase of education from another. And it's sort of the bridge that, that supports learners in, in dealing with their learning challenges. And we use an acronym, uh, so the word Bridges was an acronym for bravery, resourcefulness, integrity, discovery, grit, emotional intelligence and self-discipline. And around those seven elements of learning dispositions and character traits, we built a framework of all of the um, skills and behaviours and habits of mind that we were determined through our curriculum we'd be supporting our learners to develop. Wow, that's quite something. I've got about a thousand questions. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. So first of all, it's worth mentioning. So I saw there was a piece that you wrote uh, in 2017. And so, so Isaac Newton Academy um, the results were phenomenal, weren't they? There, the, the, like the first set of results, you went into the top one percent of the countries in the in sorry schools in the country, yeah. um, which is, you know, really impressive. Obviously, um, and so, I mean, it seems like a lot of what you were talking about is at least as much about the way in which you implemented this as about the idea itself. The fact that you started, because my initial thought when you started speaking was you were a head teacher at this time. And so how did you go about doing this? And the fact that you just invited people in, so you were like just harvesting the sort of the ripe fruit, if you like, people who were ready to take these ideas forward, the early adopters, um, and that it grew over seven years as well, which is really impressive because so often things are sort of, you know, in vogue for a year or two or three, but then they sort of fall by the wayside. And yeah. so the fact that you sort of, that it remained very central to your to your um, school vision and school life was is really impressive. Um Okay, I'll do two questions. One, one is um, you said that going back to Walthamstow, you started with a year seven, a tutoring program. Did you describe it as? Is was that was that in taught lessons or was that? Can you, what did it actually look like in terms of the mechanics of of how this was enacted for those year sevens? 
So we decided that it was very important that the year sevens had tutors who were completely committed to the learning powered approach and who would approach tutoring in a metacognitive way to talk about what they were doing with their tutor group, why they were doing it, to encourage their tutees to talk about their learning experiences, to reflect every week on the lessons they'd had, the learning uh, progress they'd made, peers who they'd been impressed with. Um, and we 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 had a cyclical arrangement whereby we focused on different dispositions and habits of mind um, each week and the tutorial program would encourage the learners to think about the times over the week when they'd been challenged to use the, the particular disposition that was being focused on. And they had little reflective journals where they'd write with support and encouragement of their tutor and after discussion with their tutor group about their learning journey. Um, and we didn't ask years eight upwards to follow the same program in the first year because we knew that it would take time to get every tutor to the stage where they felt comfortable and confident and empowered to do that. Yeah. So we put our sort of main eggs in the year seven basket, if you like. But of course, the, the tutors who were tutors to the year sevens were also teachers of year eights, nines, tens, elevens. So it spilt out inevitably into their teaching. And what we wanted was more and more people to clamour to come forward to say, please, can I be involved in this, rather than everyone being expected to be involved in it and a few people being you know, reluctant um, passengers. So I suppose we were a little bit sneaky and crafty. We, we were effectively allowing it and encouraging it to bleed out into the whole school, but not making anybody feel um, guilty or, or, or bad if, if they if they were were nervous or, or felt unskilled at, at a particular time. So, yeah, it was a sort of slowly, slowly approach. But it, there were times when it spurted on because, you know, the whole maths department or the whole music department said this is brilliant and we don't just want it to be, you know, affecting a few of our learners. And of course, once we invited the year seven parents in and talked to them about you know what we were up to many of them had siblings in other years and so you know it, it very soon spread out so it was a sort of um approach whereby we we predominantly focused on one year group but we encouraged it to spread further at Isaac Newton, obviously starting up a new school, we were able to say this is going to be part of absolutely everything. Yeah. Every lesson that's planned will be planned in a split screen way where um, the lesson objectives are partially around content and knowledge and subject specific. But there's also a very clear objective that's around the disposition that's being taught, how how the you know the knowledge of the Battle of Hastings is being communicated or whatever. And, and when you describe that as a split screen lesson, and I used to use that language as well, is that split? What do you mean by split screen exactly? Do you mean that that some of it is visible to the students and some of it is less sort of less explicit, but nevertheless very much in the teacher's mind? Is that is that sort of what you mean by that? I mean that when the teacher or teachers are planning the learning experience, they're thinking. Okay, so today's about quadratic equations, but we're going to support the students to understand quadratic equations by getting them to collaborate or work in a team or a group. And when we introduce the learning of the day, we might say this is really tricky and we're going to need to put all our brains together. So I think today we need to be really good collaborators. And what does that involve and how how big should our groups be and who should we work with and what should the different roles be within the group? Um, or maybe saying, which of our learning dispositions do we think would be the most helpful to, to utilise today to ensure that everybody knows more about quadratic equations in an hour's time than they do currently and giving the ownership to the students to have a little think about whether they 
you know, need to employ their active listening or they're managing distractions or they're working in a team productively. Um, so that the, the learning journey and the, the ways in which we're learning are communicated as much as the content of what we're aiming to understand. Right. So, so it is quite, made quite explicit to the children as well. That, yes. that, that this is what yeah. we're doing here. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, although, although it could on occasions be um, less explicit at the outset of the lesson, but lead to a, a little discussion and reflection at the end about which of our learning muscles did we did we find most helpful today? Which ones did we find ourselves using? Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear that language because we used to use the, the language of learning muscles as well because the kids really get it you know they understand that you know that they get the, the metaphor and the idea of school is a learning gymnasium and that it sort of hurts at first but then you know it's yeah. a very nice way of sort of encapsulating the growth mindset ideal um with, without using the language of you know you need to have a growth mindset which tends to make children yeah. flinch in my experience rather than you know rejoice um and but i know that some people some people don't like that that language because it's you know it, the brain isn't a muscle and you know there's sometimes it's you know it's it's like anatomically <laughs> absurd isn't Inactive. it to talk about yeah exactly so so it's interesting but but in my experience uh, the kids really really like that language of learning muscles especially the younger ones um so my second question and then i've got one about implementation the second qu sort of question about what you said earlier was that you, when you said that you when you were setting up Isaac Newton Academy you went to the states and you visited on common schools and charter schools like was it kip with some of them that the knowledge is, right. knowledge is power schools yeah. and they're often seen as quite traditional sort of teaching from the front type uh you know type approach and uh and learning power and learning to learn is often seen as not that you know you were just talking about group work and collaboration did you sort of did you experience that there was a, a tension between these things or did you find that it was quite easy to, to square that circle and if so how so what I remember from the schools that I visited in um, New York, which were schools serving really deprived, disadvantaged catchments, was a passion from the teachers to open up opportunities and enhance life chances for the youngsters they were educating. And I think sometimes that does manifest itself in we need to equip learners with knowledge because knowledge is power and, you know, knowledge and um, understanding uh, enhances the learner's self-esteem and their sense of self-worth, and that's really vital. But at the same time, I saw a lot of emphasis on developing the character traits of resilience and perseverance and grit, as the Americans often call it, mm. um, and, and supporting those young people just to be great citizens, to have a really strong moral compass, to be able to navigate um, the, the sort of temptations in life and kind of stick on the straight and narrow. So there was there was a combination really, and I, I've always felt that um, knowledge and skills have to be bedfellows. They have to sit side by side. You know, we we understand knowledge by having the skills to process it, um, and we uh, and skills can't exist without a sort of a, a content in, in a vacuum of, of knowledge. So I've always felt that this. Um, divide and polarization of you know traditionalists versus progressives is a really unhelpful um, artificial delineation mm. um, and I, it upsets me when I see on, on on Twitter you know fighting between people who see themselves as in the progressive camp or a or a, a trad camp I, I think they're just unhelpful labels and when I set up Isaac Newton one of the things that it was one of the very first tasks that the chair of governors and I, the, the initial kind of two staff members, spent a long time doing was determining what our mission statement would be. 
Um, and although it was only one sentence, it, it probably took the longest of any sentence that I've ever sort of crafted. Um, and I can still remember it by heart. And I always used to challenge staff and, and members of the school community to be able to memorise it so that it tripped off the tongue. If anybody came into the school and said, you know, what's this school all about? People well, w- w- would say. We're going to have to hear it now. What is it, the sentence? <laughs> the, the aim is to equip all learners with the knowledge, learning power and character uh, for su- success in life and beyond, sorry, at university and beyond. Um, and we, the tripartite thing of the knowledge, learning, power and character was really, really important. You know, they had to sit hand, hand in hand. We wanted to produce students who achieved great examination results. And, and, and you very kindly said we did. And we were really proud of the examination outcomes because we knew they were hugely important. And we wanted every child to have a real realistic choice of whether they wanted to go to university or not. The, the the reference to university in the mission statement was quite a controversial one, but we didn't shy away from it because we were saying not that we felt university was the gold standard or the right path for everybody by any means. Uh, we were just as excited if somebody went into a career-based apprenticeship or to a football academy or to a ballet school or you know into something they were passionate about where they found their element. But we wanted every child to have grades that would give them the opportunity and the choice that if they wanted to pursue higher education, it wasn't a door that was closed to them. So the knowledge was vital, but so was the learning power and so was the character. Uh, And we would often say we don't want to produce students who have hatfuls of A stars if they're not going to be great global citizens. You know, we want our graduates to be identifiable by the fact that when they walk down Ilford High Street, they make way for a parent with a pushchair or they help an elderly person across the road, that they've got a really strong sense of right and wrong and uh, community contribution. And we're proud of them as people uh, for the contents of their heart, you know, uh, as well as their academic credentials. Mm. And, And we wanted learners who would be lifelong learners who who would leave school with a thirst to learn more and who saw learning as a really joyous um, activity and who would have the learning skills and the dispositions to be able to cope with any sort of challenge later in life, who, you know, would be able to um, survive a bereavement or the breakup of a marriage or the loss of a job. That was really important to us too. We hadn't completed our work at the age of 18 when we turned out children with examination certificates that sent them off to interesting careers or or higher education yeah this is just music to my ears it's absolutely wonderful and what's great about your story i think is that you've done this in both ways because some people might argue like it's it's a it's a dream ticket isn't it to do the the ina sort of thing that you did where you have a year to plan it and you grow you build it up did you build it up from year seven that's called so it was year seven the first year year. and then two years later reception it was an all through yeah and you can you can recruit people according to that mission statement, and so you, you're not sort of dealing with any sort of active pockets of resistance, say, and all that stuff. Um, and there are a number of examples of schools with very different agendas from School Twenty One at one end of the spectrum, if you like, and XP schools, say, and schools like yeah. Michaela and very traditionalist schools at the other end, and they can each be successful, and, and at least part Absolutely. at least part of that is because they're able to sort of to recruit people and they've got everybody pulling in the same direction from the outset. But the school before that, when you were at Waltham Stowe Girls, that wasn't the case, that you were, you were already the head teacher then. And this wasn't even something that you had come into headship with the idea of pursuing. This is something that you realised that you wanted to go in that direction. Yeah. But you were able to take a school that was already existing with, you know, very entrenched ways of doing things because, you know, schools are entrenched in the ways of doing things. It's hard to implement change in that way. And so I'm interested to ask you about that. 
because because that's not something that's very that's very commonly seen in this in the school system like change management head teachers and school leaders aren't taught about this very well and if you ask an average teacher you know what happens when when change is implemented in your school they often groan or their eyes roll or their body language just says it all before they even open their mouth and they say you know things get rolled out and it lasts for a year or two years and then it fizzles out the senior leaders job changes or you know they they were just doing it as a as their you know mpqsl project say and everybody knew that that it wasn't yeah. going to be something that was that was there to last so i just wonder about you know had you had training in change management is this something that same came sort of quite intuitively to you because it seems like you really nailed it uh so so i'd read about change management and i'd had a headship um for a couple of years prior to going to um walthamstow so and in that headship i'd needed to change quite a few aspects of the school it was a school that um uh, was was vulnerable in many ways and uh, needed to improve its reputation, needed to improve the quality of education too. So I, I'd had an opportunity, I suppose, to sort of cut my teeth in, in, in implementing change management. But remember, when I went to Walthamstow, I went with that agenda and I was very open right from my first address to staff that this is something that I thought could be really exciting and could, could move the school on to another level. And I think what was really important was that I I was authentic and and, and the, the the mission was something that came from the heart that I had a fire in my belly about it that I didn't miss any opportunity to talk about why this was so important and um, to communicate that excitement and that conviction and that passion mm. um, and gradually it became not just me doing that but a larger group of people which obviously then you know became significantly easier. I think you're absolutely right that it's very easy for new initiatives to come and go and to be replaced by the next sort of fad or or, or um, thing that everybody's talking about or government directive. And I think when you're implementing something like a building a learning powered approach, it's such a, a fundamental change and it's such hard work. It's such a major project that you have to, as a leader, be confident that you've chosen the right initiative that's going to lead to um, the desired results, that you will protect the staff from other distractions, you know, hitting them sort of left field, and you will give them permission to say no to other things, and you'll give them time to implement this initiative. So, you know, we gave so much CPD time over the seven years to training new recruits, to um, taking our learning power journey to the next level. Um, we gave staff meeting time. We empowered leaders to um, have planning time to review and revise and update their schemes of learning. Um, we we just, you know, put, put all our eggs metaphorically into that basket um, and and then and took soundings regularly to see whether the initiatives were having the impact that we anticipated. And sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. And we had to be brave and say this isn't working at times. But also when we saw something that was working, you know, more resource behind it, um, you know, give additional funding or give additional time uh, to ensure that it, it got the oxygen it needed. Mm. Yeah, it's very impressive. 
really, really good stuff. Um, okay, so as you know, on the Rethinking Education podcast, I really like to get to know the guests before we start thinking about how to set the world to rights. Um, and so, and I know that having spoken to you last week, that, that you've been think, doing some thinking about, about your own experience of school and uh, your childhood and how that has sort of shaped you into this this, this uh, school leader. And, and, and now you're the head of, of Hearts for Learning, aren't you? Um, so I'm I'm the director of educational services at Hearts for Learning. Yes. So I lead a team of about ninety advisors and consultants who work with school leaders right across Hertfordshire and beyond, um, from early years through to primary, secondary, and special. Yes. Yeah. So so I'd be really interested to to track this journey. So so let's start by going back. What's your sort of your earliest memories of school? Um, how was school for you? I know that both your parents were teachers, weren't they? They were. So both my parents came from very sort of modest working class backgrounds, um, but both uh, went into teaching. My mum went to teach training college. Um, my father landed a teaching job and then sort of trained himself later and, and took a degree later. So neither of them went to university uh, to study a, a subject, but they both became teachers. Um, and my father went on to be a head teacher and then opened one of the first sixth form colleges in the country. Um, and my mum, having had uh, my brother and my sister and myself, uh, became a, a home tutor, uh, tutoring children who didn't go to school because either they'd been permanently excluded or they were too sick to go to school or they had other crises in their lives. Um, so, yeah, I, I, absolutely. Education is, is a big part of my family and my sister is a teacher and I obviously became a teacher. Um, and I've got uh, a nephew who's a teacher too. So yeah, it's it's clearly gone in the family. It was the one thing, James, that I promised myself I would never become. I said <laughs> that that's the most that's the most unimaginative career I could possibly pursue. Um, I'm going to do something different. And then of course, uh, became a teacher. I think it was probably uh, in the stars right from the beginning. I can remember one of my earliest memories is lining up my dolls and you know teaching them. Uh, as, as though I was a teacher when I was a little one. So, yeah, it was probably always going to be. It was in the blood. OK, well, maybe we'll come on to that decision about how you ended up uh, surrendering to teaching. Um, so so um, tell me about your your own experience of, of school. Yeah. So I grew up in a, in a small village with a little village uh, primary school, a Church of England primary school. It was two form entry. And... As you said, I've been thinking a little bit about my my um, school memories and they're not particularly happy ones. I don't think it was a great school. And I can remember as a student at primary school and secondary school, often having sort of out of body experiences where I looked at the teaching objectively um, and I suppose made judgments uh, about the quality of the teaching and how interesting or unfortunately often how boring I found it. Um, I think I, I think there were some very strange teachers at the school. I can remember one teacher who, quite literally, you won't believe me, but it is true, kept guinea pigs up her jumper. So she'd <laughs> sit and read us stories and we'd just see these strange bumps, you know, appearing at various points down her arm or kind of on her chest or occasionally a little furry head popping out, you know, the top of her jumper. <laughs> That was one of the most exciting moments. So, yeah, you have to be a pretty strange person to keep a guinea pig up your jumper, really. Um, While teaching, that's just it's like <laughs> something out of a raw doll book. <laughs> uh, I, I hope that I haven't invented any of these memories. I think they're all accurate. But, um, but yeah, you might want that to might, check. It might have been a dream. <laughs> it might have been. 
but I I remember my school being a rather a rather dull place that was devoid of a lot of warmth or or strong relationships between teachers and pupils. Um, and I I was a little bit fearful of my teachers, but at the same time quite bored. And I think I was, well, I know in retrospect, I was quite naughty at primary school because about halfway through um, my year four, I suddenly got um, removed from my class and plonked into a, a year five class. So I effectively was moved up a year. And at the time, I, I thought this was some sort of, you know, amazing thing that somebody had recognised my brilliance and accelerated me by a year. But I found out subsequently that my class teacher had just found me so annoying and such a thorough pain that she said she couldn't teach me anymore. And I think the, the other parallel class teacher didn't much like the idea of having me either. So it was decided that they'd move me up a year and I'd probably be a bit less naughty and a bit less lippy and just settle down and struggle a bit more with the work. And so you you went through school a year ahead of everyone else because of that? Yes, I did. All, all the way through. Which I really would not recommend at all. It's a terrible thing, uh, partly because I used to have to go to bed earlier than everybody else. So I never knew what they were talking about when they talked about Starsky and Hutch and all the other programmes <laughs> they were watching. But more because it almost encouraged a sense of, you know, I, I was something a little bit sort of... Um, interesting or, or unusual or even a bit sort of cleverer so it it, it it was very unhelpful because it encouraged people to see me as a little bit sort of freakish and different and to create fixed mindsets about what I could do so that when I then found learning challenging I, I felt that insecurity that a fixed mindset um, encourages see, the sort of yes. imposter syndrome everyone thinks I'm really clever because I'm the girl that moved up a year but actually I can't do this learning activity what shall I do well I'll just keep really quiet about it because otherwise that you know that mantle of um, cleverness will will be shattered yeah and you told me uh, a story earlier today I wouldn't wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing it the, the story of the note Yes, yeah, so I can remember in when I was in year six, my class teacher one day needing to send a message to another teacher in the school and writing a note on a, a piece of paper and then deciding that she'd you know, select a, a, a student from the class to go and deliver it. And to my total amazement, I was chosen to be the messenger. Um, and I say total amazement because I really felt at that school that there were definitely favourites. Um, I mean, this was a school back in the 70s, and it probably wasn't the only school, that every year would have a sort of beauty pageant and they would choose a, a Miss Basing and a Mr Basing. What? The school was called Old Basing. And, and they would parade out in front of the whole school and everybody <laughs> knew who was going to get chosen because, you know, it was always the prettiest girl and the most kind of handsome boy, oh best dressed and, and sort of favourites. And we'd all kind of sit and watch this this um, <laughs> thing unfold. It was a very strange school. The guinea pigs were not the only strange element of that school. It's getting more and anyway, more dull by the minute. Yeah, but I was chosen to deliver the message. But I didn't know who the teacher was and where her classroom was. But it wasn't the sort of school where you would feel comfortable saying, you know, I'm sorry, miss, but can you tell me where I'm going or, or you know, can you help me out here? So I left the classroom and I can remember wandering around the corridors. And it wasn't a huge school, just aimlessly hoping I'd bump into somebody who would, you know, tell me where I was going and, and where this classroom was. And in the end, just thinking, well, I can't go back to the classroom with a note because I'll be in trouble for that. I'm not going to bin the note because it's obviously important, but I don't know where to take it. I don't feel confident to knock on anyone's door and ask for help. Um, and the corridors in the school had little um, ledges where 
readers were put behind a long uh, ropes of elastic. And so I just tucked the note behind one of these books, sufficiently protruding that somebody would find it, um, hoping that, you know, somebody would then deliver it to the person it needed to go to and went back to the classroom and then just waited in fear for, for, you know, for the inevitable to happen, which happened about a day later when I was summoned to the headmaster to explain why I hadn't, you know, delivered the note as instructed. And I was in big trouble. And and it didn't occur to anybody to say, you know, why didn't you ask for help? Or what should you do when you don't know what to do? It just wasn't a learning culture like that at all. Mm. That's incredible. There's just this is a really fascinating picture that you're painting. Um, So that was primary school. How was your experience of secondary? What kind of secondary school did you go to? So I went to one of, uh, I think, about six secondary schools in the new town of Basingstoke, a couple of miles from the village um, where I lived. And this was a school that had been a girls' grammar school. My sister's four years older than I am, and she'd um, she'd been at the school when, when it was a, a girls' grammar school. But it had become a comprehensive, and London, as, as you all know, is a new town that had some pretty grim um, kind of... Uh, council estates and and a lot of sort of London overspill. So it was an interesting catchment because some of the children were very middle class and came from the surrounding villages and some of the children were, um, you know, really disadvantaged and came from some, you know, pretty deprived parts of of a a new town. And again, in my out-of-body experiences, I could see that the teachers had very disdainful views of some of the pupils. And these were ex-grammar school teachers who hadn't really been trained to or had experience of teaching, you know, rough boys in inverted commas. Um, and, and the behaviour very rapidly deteriorated. And for slightly naughty people like me, that was great because I could kind of play around with the naughty kids and um, and, and do fun things. And the teaching wasn't great. It was very didactic. And I can remember one day being in a science lesson when the school literally went into lockdown because a boy had taken a a hammer from a technology lab, a a workshop, and was sort of on the rampage around school. And quite clearly, the leadership of the school, you know, didn't didn't know how to deal with that scenario. So there were a lot of quite boring lessons um, and a lot of quite poor behaviour, sometimes contributed to by myself. and I, I sort of, as I suspect lots of children like me do, tried to kind of always stay just about on the right side of the law so I wouldn't get into terrible trouble. But, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely underperformed and, and didn't work to my potential. I had one amazing opportunity to... Um, avoid the wrath of my parents, who obviously wouldn't have been happy if I'd had bad school reports. Um, when I was sent, uh, this is there's a pattern in my life, I was sent out of class on another mission. Um, this time I did know where I was going. I was sent to the English stock cupboard to get some textbooks. Um, and I found in the English stock cupboard, the box in which all the blank reports were kept. You know, the sort of old checkbook style reports with the tracing paper writing where each teacher would literally write a line about your progress and achievement over the last year and give you a B plus or a C minus. And so I had the wherewithal to steal a few of these. (laughs) And for the whole of my school career, I wrote all of my school reports. Um, So when I got the school report, I'd take the, the staples out write my own messages from my biology <laughs> teacher or music teacher, put them in, staple them together and, and deliver them to my parents. So I kept out of trouble that way. That's very, very ingenious. Have you still got <laughs> any of these reports? Yes. 
Yeah. Wow. I would love to see those. Um, yeah. And so you, when we spoke last week, you said that you sort of often had out-of-body experiences about how you described it as how uninspiring and boring learning was in your mm. in your lessons. And so you can sort of see why you would not want to become a teacher, why you would not want to become a part of this this sort of uninspiring system. Um, and and you said that it was on your PGC year when you that you ever first saw an example of outstanding teaching. So can we talk through that thing that you mentioned earlier about how you were resisting going into teaching, and then what sort of eventually, um, you know, made you sort of give in to that idea? Yeah. So I at sixteen I went to sixth form college, um, and there I had some great teaching. Uh, it was much more dialogic, much more discursive. Um, I studied English, history and music, um, but also took a number of non-examination courses. And and the Sixth Form College was interesting because the philosophy on which it was predicated was that education needed to be broad and expansive and that actually studying for A-levels or equivalent exams was only part of what made a good education. And every student was required to study what were called main studies. And main studies were non-examined courses. And I took main studies in things like theatre arts and um, swimming and life-saving. Uh, I even took a, a main studies course in ESP. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and, and what was really interesting, a bit radical about the college, was that students were required to study main studies for more hours in the week than their examined studies. So if you had, you know, 12 hours of A-level lessons, you would have 14 hours of main study lessons. Um, and that was obviously a brave move, but a successful move. I mean, the college got great um, academic outcomes. But of course, everybody had this broad and enriched education, I suppose, a little bit similar to a, a baccalaureate style education post 16. Mm -hmm. um, now, so so those were happier years. And I remember learning a lot through discussion and debate, um, particularly in English and, um, and history. And I went to university to study history. And my university um, learning was really limited to one hour of one-to-one -one tutorial each week, a couple of hours of discussion groups a week, and then totally optional attendance at lectures. And I enjoyed the one-to-ones to varying degrees. I had different tutors in each of the nine terms. I enjoyed the discussions a lot. I found the lectures quite dry and quite difficult to get into. And, and I hadn't, at that stage, you know, as an 18, 19, 20-year-old, I didn't know how to organise my learning, I, you know, with all of that freedom um, each week. I was required to write one essay a week and hand it in, you know, on a, on a Monday for a one-to-one for a -one on a Tuesday. And I would waste, you know, Wednesdays through to Sundays and do all sorts of other stuff, but nothing to do with my, my studying. And then I'd cram for two days and I'd be up to, you know, five o'clock in the morning on the night before having to hand in the, the um, essay. And yeah, I, I, looking back, I realised what a poor learning style I had and how I wasn't a very good self-regulated learner. I also didn't really know how to fashion a, a strong essay. Um, and I stumbled across some feedback from my director of studies just the other day when I was looking for a certificate to apply for a DBS. And uh, it was fascinating to read his comments, really helpful comments around how, you know, I'd, I'd read some interesting pieces. I'd written some relevant stuff in my essay, but I needed to be much braver about articulating my own ideas and extrapolating from um, other people's research 
to to make um, my essays sort of my own and not just plagiarizing other people's um, views and sort of copying chunks out from from various books. Um, so yeah, so I I got to the end of my degree, and still you know was determined that I wasn't going to go into education that it wasn't something that um, I was going to succumb to had this crazy idea that I was going to go into a career of hotel management even had a sort of apprenticeship lined up up in St Andrews but got cold feet at the last minute and in the summer holidays after graduating applied very late to do a PGCE at the Oxford Department of Education and so ended up there you know very uncertain about how much I was going to be suited to that but I had the most amazing tutor who just showed us what great crafting of teaching looked like. And she she showed us how to create really lively, inspiring, rich learning environments. She showed us through um, role play and videoing of teachers how to engage classes, how to generate relationships of warmth, how to bring people in to want to learn, how to um, deal with the disengaged. You know, it was like looking back at myself and seeing how teachers were dealing with students um, like I had been at, at secondary school and probably a bit at primary school as well. Um, and she was just absolutely amazing. And I just, you know, I wanted to be her. I wanted to be able to teach as she did. And I was itching to, to practice and trial it in my placement schools um so just never look back from that moment and and i've met several people since who were trained as teachers under her tutelage and um you know have gone on to be head teachers and education leaders and um you know ha have had really flourishing careers there was something really magical about her tuition she was the first teacher i had who i was just in total awe of mm. yeah that's incredible. And it's also, it's incredible that this came to you. <laughs> luckily, luckily that you got one at least on your PGCE, or you might have gone through the whole the whole system without meeting somebody to look up to. Um, so obviously... That's, yeah, that, that would be unfair. I, there were teachers who I remember with great warmth, particularly at sixth form. Um, but she was the full package. She was just awesome. Yeah, yeah, she sounds it. So are there any other moments of, as you know, I'm interested in this idea, in this idea of significant learning, sort of key light bulb moments or turning points that have really sort of shaped your thinking, either educationally or in life beyond education? So I think we've covered probably the school ones. Um, the Where we started this discussion, the hearing guy talking about learning power, was definitely a seminal moment in my thinking about education and the purpose of education and what schools should be. Um, I think also the, the time when I was just about to leave Walthamstow and move to the planning year to set up Isaac Newton was when I first came across the concept of growth mindset, read Carol Dweck's mindset, read um, Matthew Syed's Bounce, heard Matthew Syed speak about, you know, the power of practice and the myth of talent. Um, and that shaped my thinking enormously. I don't think before then I'd really um, appreciated how pernicious a belief in talent uh, could be. But when I looked back on my younger years, so I, I, I learned to play the piano and the cello um, 
my family was a musical family and we all we all played the piano from the age of about six and we all um, studied a second instrument. Um, my brother and sister and I would regularly compete in music festivals as, as youngsters and do really well, often sort of winning our classes because we'd got a, a mum who was a music teacher, we had a piano at home, we had our own musical instruments, we practised for a couple of hours every day, we had great lessons, we had all the conditions that, um, you know, that were similar to the conditions that Matthew Syed had in his village uh, that produced all the great table tennis champions. So it was absolutely no surprise that we we performed to a high standard as youngsters, um, as musicians. But in those days, people didn't talk about the power of practice, you know, and people talked about us being a musical family and us having a talent on, on our instruments. And of course, as I became a, an older teenager and there were lots of competing pressures on my time and other things that I was interested in doing and I practiced less and I went to my lessons less frequently, um, I started to perform not so well, surprise, surprise. Um, but again, the sort of imposter syndrome came in and I... I resented the fact that I wasn't doing so well and that I wasn't, you know, uh, performing as well as peers and didn't think for a minute that it was about me and my attitude and my practice and my determination to push myself beyond my comfort zone and engage in purposeful practice that would increase my skill level. And so, you know, my musical instrument playing fell by the wayside, I'm sorry to say. Um, and years later, I would talk to students at school about how I used to be accomplished in you know, playing the piano or playing the cello. And now I was absolutely hopeless because, you know, I hadn't believed in the power of practice and I'd got sucked into the idea that I somehow had this sort of um, birth given talent um, that would that would see me through regardless of, you know, how little effort I put in um, and how they mustn't, you know, uh, fall into the same traps. Luckily now, I think children are, are much more um, furnished with the evidence around the power of practice and how they can grow their brains and grow their capabilities to be really strong at pretty much anything they put their minds to. But that was certainly the philosophy around which Isaac Newton was was um, designed, that we were going to support students to be really high performers because there was absolutely no reason why any child coming into school couldn't be a high performer in pretty much anything they put their mind to. They got this wonderful new school. They got a fabulous staff body. We'd got wonderful parental support. Um, we believed in a growth mindset. We were going to um, find every opportunity to support our, our students to do as well as they possibly could. Mm. Yeah. It's really, it's really noticeable. As you said, you know, you can see the strands coming to drawing to get drawing through the, your uh, experience of school and your life, you know, in terms of music education and so on. Um, that you know, it was like the learning power stuff is the thing that was missing there, and these ideas of growth mindset, and it's just so, it's so sort of frustrating how how hard it is. To, to come back to implementation, to implement these ideas, you know, there's been lots of, you know, weird stuff that's done been done in the name of learning to learn. And also in growth mindset, you know, the Carol Dweck has, you know, has published things saying, no, no, that's not what I meant. I don't I don't just mean, you yeah. know, tell kids to, you know, um, that work hard and, and that's all that they need to do. You know, there's there's more to it than this. Um, but when when we do enact these these practices really well, um, you know, if you think about the kids who who really you know hit the year twelve wall, say because they 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 can't study under their own steam, or like you you said, you know, your experience at university that was definitely my experience of university, not just for me but for everybody at my university. Mm. Everybody was that five o'clock in the morning student who was you know, you know, trying to get the printer to work before the sort of deadline. Um, and there's just there's so much waste. <laughs> I think there's so much like human waste 
that has been caused by this, like the, the fact that we haven't got on top of, you know, teaching kids these. And like you say, it's a character thing. It's like it goes beyond knowledge and skills. Knowledge and skills are part of it. I really like Claxton's uh, metaphor of the river. How you've got yeah. this fast flowing, you know, current across the top, which is like little pockets, pockets of knowledge. And then below that, there's a slightly slower moving current of skills. And then below that further, there are dispositions and these character traits and so on. And it's clear that we can do this. You know, I've done it in my work and you've done it in your work, but we're sort of isolated pockets. Um, you know, there's, there, there's the odd school that really nails it. Um, but at a system level, you know, we, we're yet to, we're yet to get there. And, um, I think that it's going to be an interesting period of time ahead of us as we start to sort of to join forces. And I know we're having a sort of wider conversation with Guy and others to see if we can sort of put our heads together with people because there are people all over the planet who are making these ideas work. It's just that we're not doing it, you know, on a wide enough scale yet. Everybody's sort of in their own little silos and they're, they're you know, plowing their own furrows and not realising that actually we are part of a sort of a, a movement, if you like, um, I'm not sure if movement's the right word, but sort of a, certainly a collective of, you know, with shared ideas about what education can and should be. Um, yes, I agree. And, and so I wonder, does, does this, does this, do these ideas play out in your role as, uh, as the director of education services at Hearts? And if so, how? Because now you're overseeing lots of schools and I imagine that there's, that's a, by its nature, that's going to be a, a diverse range of schools. So I think they definitely play out in the way in which I work with my team. Um, so I think the the sense of safety in trying new things, um, encouraging people to develop themselves, uh, rejecting any notion of ability, um, they they play out really strongly in in the philosophy and the ethic of of the team, which I have the real kind of privilege of working with. And with schools, we are constantly um, challenging them to consider what a truly great school looks and feels like and to strive to achieve that greatness. And, and we're talking here about a, a framework and a concept that's very different from, you know, an Ofsted definition or criteria of outstanding. In fact, you know, we would argue it's significantly beyond the definition of outstanding. We, we've devised a great school framework, which came partly out of work I did as a head teacher in London with the London Leadership Strategy, where I coordinated a project called um, Going for Great, which worked with outstanding schools right across London and beyond to encapsulate and uh, describe the features of great schools, high performing schools, schools that aspire for excellence for, for everybody in the community. And we've extended that in Hertfordshire and we're working with schools to to look at where they are on that journey and how we can support them and how they can um, develop further uh, to, to achieve greatness on. We, we've got sort of 10 lenses of 10 elements of greatness from, you know, aspirational vision to outward looking focus to uh, broad and expansive curriculum uh, to effective self-evaluation and review. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to know more about that. Um, there's, there, there's, there's one thing as well that um, I think it might be good to touch upon while we're talking about your sort of life history, which I think we'll maybe come back to later. Um, was the experience that you had at Tower Hamlets um, as a as a community liaison um, 
can you tell me a little bit about that and how that sort of shaped your vision of of um, of headship? Yeah, so almost all my teaching experience has been in London, and I've always worked in very pluralistic, multiracial, um, uh, mixed schools, mixed in every way. But when I um, was a senior teacher in Tower Hamlets, I probably experienced the greatest degrees of poverty and deprivation of all the school communities um, in which I'd worked. This was a school that was about 97% Bengali, um, where many of the children came from families whose parents had come from rural Salet and had had no formal education at all, and were quite scared of school, really, and quite in awe of teachers and didn't really, um, many of them, engage or, you know, there was a clearly a language barrier for many of them, but many of the children at the school had mums in particular who didn't really leave the estate and probably didn't feel safe coming out into the community. Um, and one of my responsibilities, amongst others, was... Uh, primary secondary transition and another was community engagement um, and a third they were all sort of interrelated was working with disaffected children um, and supporting them with uh, their behavior management but also their engagement in positive things in the community so that got me um, I suppose out into the community seeing some of the challenges and hardships that families experienced and working with families quite intensely who once they sensed that you were on their side and wanted to form a positive relationship with them would just give the world for you and would you know with open arms welcome you into their homes invite you to their family weddings um insist that you stayed for tea um and it was a really important lesson for me to see the real deprivations that many of our children in schools face um but also the power of building trusting relationships with families um, for, for the benefit of, of the young person's learning. Let's move into the to the rethinking education part of this conversation um, and that usually takes the form of sort of three broad areas what are the positives what are the challenges and how can we fix those challenges so let's start with the positives what do you see uh, either in your work through hearts for learning or that's happening out in the wider world um, that you think is really good that, that you think that you're, you're uh, really pleased to see and that you would like to see more of so obviously the COVID pandemic and the last year have been an absolutely tragic time for, for the country and for the world. But without doubt, there have been some positives uh, that have come out of, of the pandemic. Um, a head teacher I work with describes them as the COVID positives, which I quite like. It's a nice play on words. <laughs> but over the last 11, 12 months, I've seen and, you know, I have this amazing job where I see um, so many schools and settings of such diversity and some I'm very intensely involved in, you know, physically being in the school every couple of weeks and some I, I'm aware of and involved in because I work with the head teachers and some, you know, I, I see from a further distance. But I've seen the most amazing rapidity of learning, at, you know, it's it's almost unimaginable the amount that 
that, that has progressed in the last year. The, the skills that staff have now with digital technology and delivering remote learning, the way in which schools have worked tirelessly to support their families and communities and got to know um, the, the, the their families in so much more detail and developed a strength of relationship that just, you know, is boundlessly better than it was a year ago. Um, I, I'm really inspired by that and really heartened by that, the, the ways in which people's resilience levels have just um, continued, you know, after onslaught after onslaught, government directive after government directive, U-turn after U-turn, people are still finding the energy and the optimism and the determination to make school work for their community, to find workarounds, to ensure that children are as safe as is humanly possible, um, to galvanise their staff even when they've got 50% of them you know, out on self-isolation or struggling with symptoms themselves. So, it feels in an ironic way, a really positive time to be in education. Um, and there are so many great blogs, research pieces, think pieces, movements, collaboratives of teachers forming. There's just this wonderful sort of bubbling of ideas and creativity and people saying, okay, the goalposts have changed. That gives us flexibilities and freedoms and an opportunity to dare to dream of something different and more expansive and uh, more aspirational. So, Yes, in a strange way, I feel guilty saying this, but it feels a really exciting time to be in education. Um, and I feel very blessed to have the role that I do because I'm not as affected by um, the day-to-day -day minutiae of arrangements and operational structures and implementing rotors and systems and dealing with parental complaints and all the things that must be really draining for school leaders. But I, I feel that... I. One of the ways in which I can support and I hope people feel I'm supporting is to help to facilitate and guide thinking around structural improvements and uh, strategic direction going forward. Because, you know, at some point the pandemic will end and we will pick ourselves up and dust ourselves down and say, OK, how are we going to build back better? And what has happened to us in the last year that actually has been quite inspiring and, and what have we implemented because we had to that we've realised actually works incredibly well uh, that we want to retain and, and we don't want to lose the learning from but also what we're working on a year ago that we need to go back and um, revisit and remember and, and continue on the journey with. Yeah I, I agree it's obviously yeah while it's been a harrowing time for so many people there are many post-covid positives to use that lovely phrase um and it really does feel like there's so many people all over the planet who are talking about a reset and i know we're going to come on to think to talking about rethinking assessment later on um and there's an organization called school differently and the, the the mighty network that's grown up around this podcast the rethinking education mighty network yeah which is um, really full. To my surprise, I thought that it was going to be sort of teachers who would be drawn to it, but it's mainly parents who've, who've joined that thing and parents of kids who are like either being homeschooled or who have been school refusers or who are just at their wits end because they don't really know what to do with their kids. Um, and there's a there's a huge there's a crazy number of, of children something like three quarters of a million children who are who are just like are excluded or permanently excluded or outside of the school system uh, which is just a staggering number when you think about you know there's only what, uh, how many 15 20 million kids in the system already so like 
you know, five percent of them are you know not in the system. That's a that's so many young people. So and and there are many examples of how the the this, the system as it was before the pandemic or as it has sort of evolved to be, um, is you know simultaneously the most amazing and the most infuriating thing <laughs> that, that you can imagine you know there are so there's so much you know churn there are lots of ex-teachers in this country you know there are a lot of people who just decide that this is not something that they can live with and and I agree with you that it's been incredibly uh, sort of heartening to see how teachers have responded to this unbelievable series of challenges which as you say has not been made any easier by the lack of of clear direction and leadership yeah. from, from on high. Um, but I wish that it weren't the case, you know, and, and I, I'm, I worry about the what this, you know, I've, I've seen sort of statistics about how there's going to be a lot of ex-head teachers after this because people are just going to be burnt out and thinking, I can't, you know, I need to think about my own health and my family and so on. So um, to the extent that we can seize this opportunity to to do a, some sort of a, a, a factory reset, you know, um, and and what that actually looks like is you know is a little bit unclear and <laughs> that's partly what this podcast is about um, and I know we're going to get into to rethinking assessment in a while is before we do that is there anything else that you have in the positives column that you would like to boost the signal of so I think there's a real appetite at the moment to rethink pedagogy to re to rethink what makes effective CPD and training. So it feels to me as though we've got a cadre of teachers in our profession at the moment who are passionate about improving, improvement, improving themselves, improving their schools um, and convinced that, that, that they're, they're learning environments can be better and stronger and that schools can become greater and greater. And that feels very exciting to me. Um, and and I, I that obviously predates the pandemic, but it survived the pandemic and it's perhaps even become stronger as a result. I think that perhaps because teaching teachers as a profession have not felt particularly supported by the government or particularly valued by the media or parts of the media over the last year, they've created a sort of a, a unity around themselves that's given them um, a, a strength, which I think is really exciting to see. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a fascinating time. It, you know, it's not going to fix itself. You know, I think that we need to seize this this opportunity. It's certainly, you know, it's hard to implement change in a way that's that's lasting, as as we've discussed. So um, we'll see. Um, we'll see how things go. But there are, there are many many voices from all different areas, from education researchers at the policy level, within the civil service, you know, people are crying out for change. Okay, let's move on to the, the challenges now. <clears throat> I know that the, you've got three sort of broad things that you have in mind that you'd like to talk about. What would you like to take first? I think they're all interrelated, aren't they? Um... So shall we, maybe, shall, we, shall we outline the three then and then, and then sort of take them in turn? So the three that I have on my list, I think I think our list align are one of them is around the disadvantage gap and the what's sort of sometimes referred to as the forgotten third or the, the third of young people yeah. who fail uh, by design. You can see how that one's clearly linked to the assessment system. 
um, and we'll talk about rethinking assessment and how there's too much focus on exams and not enough on on other aspects of a human being. <laughs> Um, and the third one is about a, uh, a the idea that a teacher's role in school uh, is limited to their school. And that, that this is something that is a little bit more new ground for me. I've not really thought about this much before, but this idea of teachers as facilitators of out of school learning. Yeah. Um, which I'm, I know you've written about and it's a fascinating thing to think about. So so what's the what's the end of the piece of wool that we should tug at first? Well, let's start with the disadvantage gap, um, perhaps because it's probably the issue that for a number of years has been uppermost in my mind um, and, and, and motivated me. It was one of the key motivators that made me take the job that I have currently because Hertfordshire is a fascinating authority. Uh, attainment in Hertfordshire at all levels, starting from early years right up to A-level, is very high um, and well above national average but attainment of disadvantaged learners is very low um, and below national average, and therefore the attainment gap is really huge, uncomfortably mm. large. Um, and I've taught for most of my career in London, which obviously has had enormous success at uh, reducing and in many cases even closing the disadvantage gap um, and proved that it can be done and that there is no reason why our children from disadvantaged backgrounds or with um, less strong starting points should finish their education journey um, effectively with results that would class them in societal terms as education failures. And of course, we know how massively damaging that is for the individuals and their life stories and their self-esteem, but also for society, for the economy, for what it says about um, gaps in healthcare, life expectancy, crime rates, prison populations. I mean, it's endless, the links between underachievement at school and, um, and deleterious effects sort of later in life. Yeah. And I think because I've always chosen to work in communities with significant levels of disadvantage. It's always been a, a real passion of mine to make sure that the schools that I teach in the classes I have responsibility for, and then latterly the schools that I've led, have done absolutely everything possible to maximise the attainment of uh, the most vulnerable learners and to ensure that everybody achieves at the highest possible rates. But we know that across the country, we've still got a situation where um, a third of our children finish GCSEs each year, technically having failed to achieve a standard pass rate in English and maths. Um, and, uh, and amongst disadvantaged learners, that's even higher. That's about 72%. And we know from government reports and um, the most recent annual report from the Education Policy Institute, for example, that gap is is growing, that after about 10 years of slightly reducing gaps nationally at most of the key markers from early years to key stage two to key stage four, that gap is now stubbornly stuck and in fact increasing. And that's data from before the pandemic. And we obviously know that um, children living in the most disadvantaged parts of the country have had the most disruption in terms of their schooling over the last year. They've experienced higher levels of um, bereavement. They live in areas that have got higher infection levels. They've probably seen more impact in terms of reduction and cuts to social services and support networks around them. So, you know, everybody's research is saying that that gap 
will have grown. Um, people might argue about exactly how you measure it or by exactly how much it's grown, at which stage and which types of learners have been most affected and which age of learners have been most affected. But we know that it's not going to be um, a, a pretty picture at all. Um, so I, to me, it's absolutely vital that we don't accept this as being an inevitability. Um, and I would have said the same prior to the pandemic, but I think it's even more important now. And I've written um, in the past, and I've just completed a book, um, really arguing this, that you know we have to, as a, as a society, think about that failure rate of a third in a very different way, that if we were talking about um, a comparable failure rate in medicine, that would be absolutely unacceptable. There would be, you know, the papers would be all over it and we'd be having huge national inquiries. And yet, because it's in education, um, it's almost accepted as, uh, you know, the norm. Yes. And so let's dig into that, because I really liked an article that you wrote recently uh, where you were sort of talking about, you know, the, well, there's a number of medical analogies in there. There was the idea of infant mortality rate and how it used to be really high and still is in some countries. And now it's really, really, you know, like really, really low in, in certain in, you know, in developed countries. Um, and so the idea that we would have a fixed failure rate of like one third of kids fail by design every year is sort of ridiculous. If I, if we'd have just put a floor target like in, you know, um, the amount of kids who can be considered to be literate, you know, the difference between the amount of kids who could read 200 years ago before the invention of schools and now is ridiculous. And so I, t I completely agree with you that, that um, you know, we we can fix this. It's it's absolutely fixable. And we've shown that we can do it on at the level of an individual school and an individual classroom. It's the scaling up thing. That's why I'm so obsessed with implementation science. It's the scaling up bit. It's not that we don't know what to do on the ground. It's the actual process of change management at a system level. Um, and so can we just dig into this medical analogy? So the book that you've written is, is, is called, is it Obstetrics in Education? Obstetrics for schools. Obstetrics for schools. Yeah. So, so give us the pitch for the book and why why are you drawing this medical analogy? Okay, and perhaps just to say before that, when we're talking about you know a third failure rate, there's two things going on here. I mean, obviously, the third failure rate is always going to exist as long as we have an examination system that's norm reference that bakes in a third failure rate. So yeah. part of it is through the design of the system. But it is about more than that, because actually, if you look at the skills that you need to get a standard pass in English or maths, um, I, I think people would accept that children who are getting ones, twos and threes in their GCSEs, English and maths, have not got the standard of literacy or numeracy that's actually going to give them a passport to, um, you know, a successful transition into the next stages of their lives. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. It's about saying how ridiculous that we have a system that requires people to failure, to fail and, and leave school as failures and, you know, all the damage that does. But it's also about why we've we got some schools that aren't seeing any children get one, twos, threes and fours. And they're not selective schools. You know, they're taking a broad cross section of children coming in with average uh, attainment rates on entry. And yet they're managing to ensure that everybody succeeds to to a strong level. Mm. Um, and, and that's why I think the medical analogy the medical analogy that I draw in the book Obstetrics for Schools is all about obstetrics. It's about infant mortality. And it starts by saying that. You know, in 1800, we had a global infant mortality rate of 43 percent, you know, horrifically high. And that had reduced massively by 1950 to 22 percent. 
So in 150 years, you know, it had, it had halved. And now we've got a situation where in our country, thankfully, it's um, you know, absolutely minimal. And even globally, it's only 4.5%. So, you know, in, in some of the most challenging environments, Somalia, Afghanistan, which have some of the higher um, infant mortality rates now, it's still around about 11, 12%. Um, and and really saying, you know, why has that happened? So we would know as amateur um, observers of medicine that a lot's to do with um, anaesthetics and antiseptics, but it's also about much better training of medics. It's about um, looking at um, at mums, uh, it, both in terms of what support they need during childbirth, but also in the first couple of years of, of an infant's life. It's about close screening and tracking so that if um, a mother's got an underlying health um, issue or perhaps is an older mum, you know, they're, they're screened more closely and there are interventions put in place to support them during their pregnancies. And, and all of these examples can be um, extrapolated out and sort of applied to 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 education but just starting with the sort of expectations so there wouldn't be a, 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 a hospital in the country that would set itself a target of you know a third failure um, in, in obstetrics um, and yet we have schools where teachers or departments or um, head teachers are agreeing targets for students where that failure is just anticipated and expected and not particularly sort of challenged or questioned why have we got any individual teachers or departments at secondary, for example, that are anticipating or projecting or aiming for any child not to get a four or five at GCSE in English and maths or whatever subject? And there might be the very, very occasional exception to that, you know, a child with profound special educational needs. But we really shouldn't be anticipating um, that children will be leaving school after 14 years of education, you know, without a decent standard of literacy or numeracy. Um, and as we've both said, you know, it doesn't happen everywhere. But, but then, you know, the example of um, training and really good instructional coaching, you know, we know that medical schools provide fantastic um, evidence-informed training, ongoing professional development that exists in many schools but doesn't exist in all yeah, it would be completely crazy if um, people in uh, medicine were totally obsessed with just sort of practicing delivery, but not thinking about um, the, the entirety or the sort of broad medical care that new parents need. So why are we so obsessed with preparing children for exams, but not actually preparing them with the skills that they need for life and to be effective learners in situations that aren't exam halls? Um, and also, you know, why are we not working? things more smartly and I think it's happened more over the last year but um, certainly a year ago it was not the case with with families with parents what you know the parental engagement is so incredibly important to support young people's learning um, you know we have all sorts of antenatal care and postnatal care and organizations like the childbirth trust that support parents we don't sort of you know chuck new mums out of hospital and say right you're on your own now for you know for, for the for the next 18 years bringing up your child yes yeah this i mean it's a very rich it's a very rich theme i think and and to play the devil's advocate for a moment 
I've seen people sort of like object to to medical analogies being used in education before because they think that it's like equating childhood with sickness in some way and that this is like a a deficit model of childhood um and you can sort of see the point and I'm sure that you've thought about this as you've been as you've been writing this book but I think that that you know what you just said is a really is a really strong rebuttal of that that you know we're not doing that but there are many things that we can learn from you know the the thinking that goes into into thinking about healthcare and how we can make people healthy and happy no i mean i think you're right it sometimes um sometimes medical analogies are a little bit sort of forced or contrived but the more i thought about this one the more i thought there are examples that we can learn right across the piece in terms of all the barriers that disadvantaged learners face and lower attaining um, youngsters face where we can learn from medicine and i suppose people often say to do all the things that you're proposing rachel you know to be focused on parental engagement and raising aspirations of teachers and developing cultural capital and ensuring that there's good metacognitive practice in schools and the smartly targeted and focused interventions all of that is a you know a huge ask well i sort of feel like uh, our NHS is, is 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 subject to a massive ask at the moment, and how brilliantly is it coming through? So why shouldn't we make a kind of huge ask of education, and why shouldn't we dream, you know, of great dreams for everybody to succeed and eliminating fatality? Because you know, no one would say that the NHS is brilliantly funded. No one would say that the NHS isn't struggling with um, you know staffing crises and, and other challenges and yet how brilliantly is it um is it pulling through you know against against diversity yes so so do you want to should we go through the three challenges and then talk about solutions or do you want to sort of think about potential solutions to this sort of disadvantage problem first Let's do them. Let's do the disadvantage one first, and then go on to the next problem, shall we? Okay. So, so you just said that you know one one easy thing that schools can do is like stop setting kids targets of ones, twos, and threes. <laughs> like that's not a, that's not a target. That's just like a, that's a poor target, and it's not going to be motivating, is it? You're you know if you work really hard, then you're going to have to reset this next year. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, what they're saying. Um, so so obviously that's one really easy win just like don't set any target below a four um what else what else do you see that's happening uh, in these schools and like you said like london has been on a on a real journey the london challenge you know there's like uh, just absolutely incredible gains that were made when people really put their heads together and looked at this from multiple perspectives which yeah. you know again is just like a core core um pillar of you know effective implementation what else can schools do um if you were taking over a school now where there was a huge like let's say that there's a school that was like hearts for learning but in microcosm really wide uh, really wide um inequality of outcomes what would be the first sort of three things that you would look at yeah and I, first, I should just make it clear that within Hertfordshire, there are lots of schools that don't have a gap. There are lots of schools who have sure. cracked this. Yes. Um, but we know as an authority, um, we, we have an issue with our disadvantaged youngsters not doing as well as we want them to, and, and they should. Um, so the, the book really takes a, a recognised barrier per chapter and unpicks it and um, looks at what you know what the barrier is, why it exists, and what we know works um, to... to overcome it and one of the lovely things about you know my role currently and the role that I had um, as the director of uh, of London leadership strategy was that I 
got to see a little window into so many schools that are doing the most amazing things to close gaps and ensure there's a high performance culture for everybody. So in London, I work with, I think, about 120 schools over a nine year period, um, putting together case studies and, and publishing a book annually of inspiring practice that, uh, that gave glimpses into greatness. And in Hertfordshire, I work with a group of about 20 odd schools each year on a programme called The Great Expectations, where, again, we um, look at ways in which schools have created high performance cultures and closed gaps and, um, and, and cracked you know, this agenda. And again, we produce um, volumes of, of books that kind of go out to, to Hertfordshire schools each year. So there's lots and lots that can be done. And some of it is very systemic and some of it is quick wins. So, for example, if you don't crack the unconscious biases and the culture and beliefs of staff, you're going to find it very difficult to create a culture in which everybody achieves really highly and, and aspirations of, of everybody are, are, are excitingly high. Um, and there are some little wins to that, but there's also some structural stuff that needs to be put in place. And so what does that look like? How do you crack these unconscious biases and the beliefs of staff? So the first thing you have to do is accept that they will exist. Um, because I don't know about you, but I've never spent any time in a school where I haven't occasionally heard somebody talk about children like these or, yeah. oh, well, this student's never going to you know, get a five in maths or they're just not musical or but their parents don't support us or, you know, any of the myriad excuses or justifications that we hear. And they're understandable, but they tell a story about fixed ceilings and um, limited beliefs. Mm. Um, and so we have to be open and honest about that and we have to address them whenever we hear them. But there are certain things that are relatively small things to do that have enormous effects. So one of the things that we did at Isaac Newton is we said, as a school, we are never going to talk about ability. We don't believe in fixed ability. We don't believe that some children are able and others aren't. We're not going to have sets that are called high ability sets. We're not going to have a gifted and talented register. Um, you know, we don't believe that children come out of the room with a with a, 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 an IQ score, you know, stamped on their forehead that will be their destiny for life. We know that children can perform at ever higher increasing levels of things through hard work, deliberate practice, etc. So we might, in certain subjects, set children by attainment. We might say, you know, you're in this group because you're attaining at this level in Spanish and everyone else in your group is too. And we think that that's the best grouping arrangement for you at the moment to accelerate your progress as quickly as possible. And yes, there's a group that are performing at a higher level than you, but they're not the high ability group because you have the potential to get into that group through you know, improved performance and, and greater skill acquisition. And it's important for schools to make sure they're always celebrating and telling those stories. And, and most powerful is that the children themselves who've moved from a lower attaining math set to a higher attaining math set go into assembly and talk to their year group below and say, this is how I did it. You know, when I first started to school, I really wasn't very strong at maths, but I wasn't low ability maths, you know, because that would consign me to always being in that bottom group. I was just somebody who found maths a bit difficult for the following reasons. And then with, you know, these supports and structures in place, I got progressively better and it was hard work. And I had to, you know, put in a few extra hours at school and go to pre-classes or catch-up classes, or I had a buddy or a mentor, the teacher gave me extra practice. But, you know, gradually I moved um, up to the next set and then to the next set. And now, look, you know, I've just taken my GCSE and I got a grade five. And 
you know, I'm off to do these A-levels or whatever. Mm. So there are some fundamental things that schools can do to change that culture and to challenge that culture sort of relatively profoundly. Um, yeah. So so we've got um, address teacher beliefs and uh, unconscious biases, accept that they're real, but work with them. I suppose they bring them into the spotlight in a, in a way that feels safe for, for teachers to sort of to examine absolutely. those aspects of themselves. Uh, don't set low target grades and and don't talk about ability. Um, is there anything else? You said that there's a, there's a, there's an idea in each of the chapters of the book, and I, yeah. um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing that book when it comes out. Is there anything else that leaps out at you that we haven't touched upon yet uh, before we move on to rethinking assessment? So um, I focus in on the book on addressing economic poverty and destigmatizing um, the, the children who face economic poverty. I think there's a lot that happens in education that disenfranchises those who come from economically challenged backgrounds. Uh, and there's a real cost. I mean, there's been some fascinating studies, haven't there, around the cost of a school day and the ways in which um, in schools we inadvertently disenfranchise children from particular activities. Um, it's fascinating um, the evidence of how children from disadvantaged backgrounds often choose not to study subjects like music at GCSE because there's a real cost attached to, you know, becoming proficient practically on an instrument. And ESSA schools very aware of that and puts in place um, interventions to ensure that that isn't the case. It can be the same with PE and it can be the same with art. Um, so there's stuff in there around that. Also around cultural capital and ensuring that all children from whatever background are equipped with the cultural capital to have their horizons broadened and their eyes widened. And, you know, I, I can remember at university as a child from a, um, a sort of modestly middle class background who'd had, as you know, music lessons and opportunity occasionally to go to the theatre and to pantomimes and things. I, I, I wasn't coming from a culturally deprived background. But I was really, I really struggled often to identify and understand what my peers were talking about who had a much more culturally rich background. And I can remember being in a, um, a discussion once around uh, portraiture in, in history and, and propaganda through royal portraiture. portraiture. And uh, the director of studies making some reference to art gallery visits and it became really clear to everyone that I'd never been to an art gallery. And, and people were just totally dumbfounded. I can remember people's jaws sort of, you know, visibly dropping and, and feeling quite um, unsettled by that and, you know, getting a sense of imposter syndrome. And, and if I felt that from a relatively advantaged background, how must our youngsters from really disadvantaged backgrounds feel when yeah. so much of what is being discussed um, and it, they're experiencing in the curriculum relies on a cultural knowledge and understanding that they just haven't developed? And so much of what's then examined and the rubric of exam questions you know, requires and expects a cultural knowledge that they don't have. So I think that's hugely important. And another thing that I talk about, uh, there's a whole chapter in the book on is oracy and the importance of education, developing children's ability to learn through language and to um, express themselves effectively and articulately and just how empowering that is and how important that is. And I think that very often with content heavy exam syllabuses and uh, um, 
a high accountability structure that we have currently in education in our country, teaching to the test, that time for learning how to speak and through talk um, is sacrificed. And I, it's one of the things I worry about hugely with the pandemic that, you know, remote learning makes discussion really difficult. Many of our young people in Hertfordshire, I'm sure it's the same across the country, are very self-conscious about mm. turning their microphone on in Zoom lessons, um, about uh, showing themselves in, in discussion groups. And we know that when schools were operating, but with, uh, you know, social distancing measures in place, there was an encouragement for teachers to lay their uh, classrooms out in serried rows with all children facing the front, which obviously isn't then conducive to discussion and learning through debate. Uh, for understandable reasons, we it's difficult to have children engaged in face-to-face -face discussion currently, but we, we're going to have to really ensure, I think, once we come out of the pandemic, that we put a huge emphasis back on learning through dialogic discussion could not agree more and you're, you're preaching to the converted there and uh, and it, i mean it, this sounds great it sounds like a quite a comprehensive recipe from somebody who has you know um you know you're uh, leading by example in the work that you've done it sounds like a really valuable book i'm really do you know when it when's it coming out is there a release date as soon as my copy editor approves the <laughs> the text, I'm going through that painful stage at the moment that you all know, James, where, you know, I, I think I finished writing in October and, you know, then just going through and doing all my referencing and getting permissions. And uh, that took a little bit of time. And now we're on our, our final edit. So it's due to come out in the spring. OK, yeah, wonderful. A couple I, of months. I look forward to seeing it. Okay, so uh, let's move to the second of the challenges that you've identified, which is around the assessment system. And I know that you're uh, involved in this group that's emerged recently, the Rethinking Assessment Group, uh, which is really interesting and has been making some waves, uh, getting lots of press coverage. And I know you were, at, uh, you were on The World at One last week. So if it's good enough for Radio 4, it's good enough for the Rethinking <laughs> Education podcast. So... Um, I don't know where you want to start by think, talking about this organisation or whether you just start with the, you know, maybe the, maybe that organisation is part of the solution. Let's start with the problem. Why do we need to fix our assessment system? As a head teacher, I worked incredibly hard to ensure that all of the students in my care could perform as well as they possibly could in exams. So, so achievement in exams was a non-negotiable but the more I thought about it and particularly now that I've been out of headship for three years the more I think looking back on that work the more it frustrates me that we were being required and, and school leaders are being required to work to a system that you know has some really fundamental flaws to it and I suppose with last summer's debacle of exams not going ahead and the mutant algorithm and all of the spotlight and attention that that got, and now facing a second summer of formal assessments at Key Stage 2, Key Stage 4, Key Stage 5 not going ahead, it's just ignited a really interesting debate about all the multitude of deficiencies with a terminal exam arrangement. Um, and, and there are so many of them, James. So... 
um, you know, what's wrong with an exams only assessment system? Well, first of all, it's only allowing us to um, to test a proportion of children's learning and understanding because there's a limit to what you can assess through what are effectively in most subjects now written exams only. Um, so exams assess our ability to write about what we know and what we can do. And that's OK for certain aspects of learning, but it's really difficult as a way of assessing practical um, competency. Um, and it obviously favours people who are good at writing about how good they are at things and not necessarily demonstrating or showing how good they are at things. Um, I think they also really distort the curriculum, uh, what we teach and the way we teach. And, and if they're a narrow end assessment point, then they further narrow the curriculum, which is problematic for lots of reasons that we talked about, you know, just in, in recent um, minutes. They they don't allow us to demonstrate or for, for learners to demonstrate their wider learning skills, their characteristics, their capabilities out of school, uh, what they can do practically, what they can do with other people. They're very individual focused, um, which is really worrying, I think. Um, so, so implicitly, they're valuing what individuals can do individually above what they can do collectively and with others. Um, and yet, we know that people's success and contribution in employment is almost always to do with how well they can get on with other people, how effectively they can work in teams. You know, I can't imagine that the AstraZeneca um, vaccine would have been created by people working individually. Um, they're hugely problematic because they're very high stakes. They take an individual snapshot on a day or a very small number of days. Um, they put value on, on memory and recall over deeper knowledge and, and problem solving and real understanding. And there are relatively few situations where in real life we need to have a fantastic memory um, and being able to regurgitate facts in examinations doesn't really demonstrate effectively deep understanding or long lasting understanding. So yeah, lots and lots of reasons there. And the reason why this for me ties in so um, directly with my concern around the disadvantage gap is that we know that disadvantaged learners perform so much worse in examinations than, than their peers. Um, and that isn't just to do with potential starting points being, um, being different. It's to do with the fact that exams by nature, you know, are unfair for the disadvantage. So, because exams are so content heavy, um, it's very difficult to achieve high grades on exams without being present for the teaching of all of the content. And we know that disadvantaged youngsters are more likely to have disruptions to their school history um, and for very understandable reasons, not have such high attendance rates. The fact that they live, or they're more likely to live in overcrowded multiple occupancy homes means they're more likely to get uh, illnesses and diseases as we've seen played out so um, obviously in the last year. Um, so there's, a, there's a, an obvious sort of issue there. We also know that young people from disadvantaged families are more likely to have 
um, mental health um, issues and the high stakes examination that uh, examinations that uh, are done under sort of high pressure are not a great way of testing any young adolescent's um, knowledge. They don't sort of play to the strengths of the adolescent brain, but they're particularly um, disadvantaged children with um, attendant issues or concerns or challenges or complexities in their lives. And then the issue that I referred to before, just around, you know, the language of the rubric of exams, often disempowering children whose subject understanding is good, but whose understanding of the linguistics and the nuance of the exam question often trips them up. So we, we hear people say that there are um, inherent biases in the way that teacher assessments are marked and that sometimes the disadvantage can be unfairly disadvantaged through teacher assessment and I think that's a real issue that we have to grapple with um, but but de facto that doesn't mean that blind marked exams are fair to the disadvantage yeah yeah absolutely and the, and there's no steer coming from above with this is there I remember when um you know, they were talking about just delaying the, before they finally agreed that they weren't going to run exams next year. They were saying we're going to delay them by three weeks and that we should do that because that because it's fair. Gavin Williamson was on the Today programme saying that's the fair thing to do. And the, the presenter was asking the, the smart question, which was like, well, how is that fair? You know, if, for example, you know, some schools and some young people have had to isolate three or four times or their teachers have had to isolate. And some schools have had like less than half of the teachers in at any one time. And other schools in other parts of the country have been relatively unaffected by the pandemic. And so how is it fair? And he was just going, well, it's fair because exams are fair. And she's going, but it's not, is it? And it's just like, I almost felt sorry for him because he's not, he's clearly, you know, not massively even in control of education policy. It seems like he's getting a, a strong steer from Downing Street. But there's no there's no fixes coming from above, which is why this rethink thinking assessment group is so welcome. And you mentioned, you know, the adolescent brain there. I know that Sarah Jane Blakemore is involved. So you, you put together a sort of a coalition of people from from across a number of different uh, areas of expertise and experience. So so what was your sort of beginning of your of your development in this group? What was its inception and what are its aims? What do you want? <laughs> Okay, so you're right. It's a really exciting group because it's got such wide coverage. So there are school leaders um, and uh, MAT leaders on the group. There are academics. There are people who are uh, really sort of well respected in higher education. There are employers. Um, there are union leaders. Uh, we've got Alison Peacock from the Chartered College. Um, we've got Sir Ken Baker, who was the architect of GCSE, saying mm. you know, GCSEs are, are, are broken, um, they're, they're um, outdated. You know, what, what is the point of having a, a sort of terminal assessment point at 16 when almost all learners stay on in education till 18? Um, so, yes, a really interesting sort of mix of um, great thinkers and great minds coming together. We have, um, I mean, the movement is open to anybody to join, and I'd encourage everybody to have a look at rethinkingassessment.com, get involved in some of the polls and surveys, read the blogs, contribute blogs, uh, follow the thinking and the working of the group. Uh, there's an advisory group which I sit on um, along with about 15 other people uh, that meets every few weeks and, and looks at policy direction. And then currently we've got two really interesting working groups um, whose progress can be tracked on the Rethinking Assessment uh, website. And it's all very sort of open and transparent, the, the, the state of uh, their work. 
And they are groups that will have about a six month shelf life. One's looking very much at um, what we should measure and how we should measure around the academics, what um, Peter Hyman from School 21 would call the head from his head, heart, hand. Um, and the other, which is the working group that I'm um, contributing to, is around the, the, the sort of the heart and the hand, the uh, learning disposition, skills, character. Again, what could we measure? What should we be measuring? And how should we be measuring it? And even should we be using the language of measuring? We've talked a lot about are we measuring, are we assessing, or are we evidencing? And at the moment, we're saying, really, we should be thinking about a model that gives young people the opportunity to demonstrate and to evidence what they've learned, what they've accomplished, what their skills are, um, uh, what, what, they, what they're developing. Um, and we're, at the moment, taking a really long, hard look right around the world at a whole range of uh, evidencing systems. Um, from Europe over to America and scorecards um, to uh, Australasia and some of the really interesting work around learning dispositions that's happening there. Um, and also looking in the UK at schools that have bucked the trend, been brave, decided that they won't enter children for full suites of GCSEs or A-levels, but will devise their own courses, uh, their own um, uh, expeditions of learning, their own ways of tracking um, and supporting young people, sometimes with learning coaches to put together portfolios of accomplishments, etc. Um, and also trying to learn from uh, what happens in professions, in higher education, in the world of uh, medicine schools, engineering, um, uh, on arts programmes, because it strikes me at the moment that we have some really interesting practice happening at early years and some really interesting practice in holistic um, evidencing happening post 18. And between sort of the ages of six and 18, we're, we're really narrowing and stifling what we assess and therefore what we teach and what we therefore almost intrinsically give messages out about what we value so that this whole language around soft skills, even just by, you know, the language that's used is, is inadvertently or deliberately, depending on uh, your viewpoint and who you are, perhaps devaluing um, anything other than, than the academic. And we've almost slept walked, I feel, into a situation where apart from in a few practical subjects at school, um, the, the non-examined components have largely disappeared. You know, our English GCSE examination now doesn't have a spoken component at the moment. Um, uh, you know, assessment in subjects like science and languages, it's very, very difficult to, um, to, to, to facilitate uh, practical assessment. But, you know, how crazy that in, in languages subjects, we're not giving a huge amount of weight to spoken proficiency or in science, uh, children's ability to uh, problem solve and uh, come up with solutions in, in practicals and working collaboratively in teams. Yes. Yeah. Wow. There's so much there. <laughs> um, like earlier, I've got about a thousand questions, but I'll try, I'll try and whittle them down. Um, I mean, first of all, it's really, I really was uh, um, delighted to hear you talking about how exams 
are very individualistic because that's something that I've thought about for a long time and, and increasingly so recently. But it's not something that I've heard many other people talking about. But if you really think about what that means, it's a better than system, isn't it? Rather than better mm. with. It's like I'm doing, I've got to do better than other people. And that whole, you know, the idea Kate McAllister was talking about when she was on the podcast about how you, you bend your elbow around your work like that so that people can't copy you because copying is cheating rather than helping, <laughs> which, you know, it would be another way to frame that. Um and if you think if you think about the the wider society, you know, like the people who do well in the system, especially the people who go to private schools where almost everybody gets very, very good grades in this better than system and who go on to occupy positions of power in society are inherently people who have been rewarded for behaving in self-interested ways, you know, performing better than other people. And when you look at the kinds of behaviours that we see a lot of at the moment, like the cronyism that's happening and people, you know, being awarded contracts down the VIP lane that's mm. rampant at the moment, yeah. um, banker bonuses, you know, increasing after the 2008 crash. If you remember Stephen Byers, that politician, described himself as a cab for hire. He just like, his job is just to, you know, take money to get people to be at a dinner where they're sitting next to the chancellor or whatever. And, and it's almost like, it's not a surprise that we're seeing all of that very self-interested behavior. It's like the, the system has rewarded it at every, at every turn. And so we need to think about this almost like on a philosophical level, first of all, because we treasure what we measure. There's another phrase from a previous, a previous guest from Priya Lakhani. We treasure what we measure. And, and it's hard to measure. Like you were saying, for example, you spoke in proficiency. I do a lot of work around oracy. And I understand that why it was that, that the, you know, the spoken element was taken out of the English GCSE because it's sort of annoying <laughs> like to, to assess spoken language. It's more time consuming because sp spoken language is ephemeral. It sort of disappears. It doesn't leave a paper trail by definition. It's like technically sort of more challenging to assess than it is just to assess, you know, like a written paper or multiple choice paper, even easier where you can just get a computer to mark it. And so... We need to we need to prioritize that. I think like what is the kind of world that we want to see? Do we want people who are better than or or better with? And and there's a balance to be struck there. It's not like you know it's that like competition is always a bad thing. I think science is a really good example of some of a, a field where competition and collaboration are in a in a healthy state of balance, where people are sharing ideas and helping one another out. But they also there's a healthy sort of dose of self interest, and they want to be the person who, you know, creates the vaccine first or whatever. You know, gets their name on the thing, you know, that their life is spent working on. Um, so I think that we sort of need to start at that end. Like the, all of these ideas that you're talking about, scorecards and portfolios of evidence and so on, um, there's, there's, there's no shortage, like you say, around the world of, of, of ideas. But I think that we need to start by thinking, like, what is it that we treasure and what's the kind of world that we want to see and like, work backwards from there and then solve those technical difficulties? Um, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, we've got an assessment system that has been devised by people who've done very well from an assessment system that's, you know, terminal examination. So it's no surprise that, that, that we sort of we are where we are. But I think... I'm interested in what you said about independent schools because it strikes me that um, that actually what particularly the boarding school model um, enables is a really effective wraparound 
education where learning doesn't stop after the taught lessons, which are obviously in, you know, highly advantageous um, small groups, you know, with a wonderful staff pupil ratio. But you know, those children who stay at, um, at, at boarding school and, and are in dormitories have study sessions in the evenings where they've got peers to do their homework or their prep with and collaborate with and probably a, 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 an adult on hand to guide them and support them as well. So they've almost got 24-7 support and they've got, you know, Saturday morning lessons and all sorts of enrichment classes at weekends. So, I imagine there's one of the reasons why children who study at advantaged public schools, independent schools, do so well is because they are getting really good 24-7 uh, education and, and opportunities to study with their peers and learn from their peers in a really well-structured and supported way. Um, so they, they are benefiting from the group learning and the team learning. But you're right, we were having an interesting discussion in the Rethinking Assessment Advisory Group yesterday around how there's almost become a culture of thinking that what you've accomplished with other people somehow doesn't count as much as what you've accomplished on your own. Mm. And that, um, that there's a fear of sort of saying, I worked on this with somebody else because you might get seen as cheating or, or, or you know, uh, uh, achieving off the, you know, the shoulders of other people, which is just a, a very sad indictment of where we've got to, I think. Um, and in terms of assessing oracy and um, people's ability to demonstrate um, orally what they've learnt and how deep their understanding is. I think that perhaps one of the issues is that we don't track and record and store evidence over time of how children's uh, learning through talk is, is demonstrated. And, you know, an early years teacher will take endless hours of video recordings of the children in their care progressing with their manipulative skills and their um, oracy skills and, you know, the whole breadth of their learning. Um, but, but we don't we don't do that at increasingly at primary school and certainly not at secondary school in most cases. So that when then a global pandemic hits us and, you know, three months from the terminal exams, you know, a crisis hits, we haven't got this wonderful portfolio of evidence that we can say, well, it doesn't matter because over the last 13 years, we've been collecting this journey and evidence of, of, of what, what a child's accomplished. And so, okay, the last six months might have been a bit messed up, but that's not the end of the world because we, we literally haven't been storing anything. We're putting all of our our um, attention on, on on what's achieved in a few hours of exams at the end of the course yes yeah and i think that, that we can learn a huge amount from early years practitioners in this they're really good at doing that much more rounded holistic assessment and uh, doing it in a very thorough way um are, are there any university admissions people in the rethinking assessment group because i wonder like when i've sort of talked about this stuff before like, a common objection is um, that universities, you know, if you ask this question, like, what's the point of qualifications? The idea is that they open doors and, you know, universities is one of those, right? Probably one of the main ones that we think of. Um, so the idea that, you know, that they would find it difficult to, to, you know, they wouldn't have the time to sort of wade through, you know, thousands and thousands of portfolios of evidence and looking at somebody's, the way that somebody's oracy has tracked over time, say, that, that sort of the ability to compare like with like, uh, by you know whether or not it's fair or unfair or whether or not it's you know measuring you know the whole child or not it's sort of easy to do that you know and they can just issue a, you know a letter that says if you hit these grades then you know you're in and if you don't then you're not and it makes you know that process a lot easier 
Uh, I wonder if that's been, you know, to, to, to what extent that's been central to your thinking, because it seems like that's one of the main obstacles. It's a really good question. And um, I'm not sure that we have got an admissions officer on the group. We, we're we having some really interesting talks with um, the CEO of one of the exam boards at the moment, who's um, very interested in, in the work that's being undertaken. And I think, you know, we are increasingly ensuring that we've got coverage from all sectors that have a stake in, in this debate. So, yeah, it, it's kind of growing daily, the, the coverage. But yeah, I'll take mm. that one back, definitely. Okay. And we'll come back to, I know you mentioned the boarding school model earlier in the sort of the evening study sessions, which I think is, um, you know, a fruitful thing. And I know you, it's something it's links into the final thing that you want to talk about. So there's one more thing I want to ask you on the rethinking assessment front, which is that um, it seems to me that music grades provides us with a really good model for how we could rethink assessment whereby you know first of all you don't have to do an assessment you know like you said before you were that you were a grade eight cellist um you know and you, you knew that because you were you'd, you'd sat those assessments but you know you also don't have to sit assessments in order to be able to play a cello to that same standard and some people choose not to Absolutely. do that and so i sort of think you know one of my earlier guests ian cunningham um said, thinks that and I, I agree with him he thinks that it's profoundly unethical to to like to force somebody to sit an assessment against their will and to grade them that he just thinks that that's like an infringement of their human rights to to choose to be able to choose to not have that done to them and i think that it's there's there's quite a strong case there and it's it's certainly a controversial idea some people would say that that's you know just like going to widen the gap if we just let let people from disadvantaged communities choose not to be assessed in things that's a that's a fascinating conversation but um there, there is a conversation to be had there um but the going back to the music grades thing you know you can have you know a, a grade one assessment when you're good and ready for it and when your teacher thinks you're good and ready for it and if you want to have grades you can pass it at say you know pass merit or distinction um and then you can choose to go on to your level two say or you could choose not to and it seems like we could it wouldn't be that difficult to 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 import that into all subject learning you know you could have a grade one maths class i think that it would lead to stage not age classes mm. because you know some year 11 kids are the same standard as some year seven kids in maths and so th there's that challenge to overcome like organizationally i think that it would be good to get a timetablers uh, you know involved in this discussion because the whole like it's, it's you can't just rethink assessment if if rethinking assessment leads to you changing the way that you group children you know and i know that in the netherlands they have they have stage not age quite widely um but a load of other things start to sort of unravel. You know, you can't just keep it within the assessment box because it, it turns into the structure of the school, the physical layout of the school, the timing of the school day. It's complicated stuff. Um, but to my understanding, when I've looked into this, people have said that in the past that they look, because the music grades are criterion-based rather than yep. rather norm-based, and you hit these criteria Absolutely. and you pass or you fail. And yeah. and I read a thing by Ofqual, and they sort of said it was something like we really tried to do this in the nineties and eighties, where we really tried to make criterion based assessments work. And despite I think they described it as heroic efforts, they were unable to make this work. And therefore, we've got this sort of this this weird norm reference. Norm references, and it's sort of like it's it's, like, it's not purely norm reference, is it? It's, it's norm referenced, but also there are algorithms at work. All the time, it's, it's, they call it the statistical model or something. But yes. there are algorithms at work all over the place to make sure that you know that children are sort of filtered into the right boxes, uh, grades-wise. 
but I would really love to to get involved in these conversations and to understand like what are these logistical difficulties with implementing a criterion based because it, if it's possible in music why is that not possible in maths in English and art and all it would take is for the exam boards to publish you know grade one level papers grade two level papers I and mean, you, you could pilot that really nicely um, and I, Absolutely. I, I can't see that that wouldn't work and it just seems to be a really obvious way to fix it and it and it also gets rid of that whole failure thing because you know if you really want to sort of achieve level four five and six or nine or infinity however how you want it to go then you know there's no lid on that but also every if a child gets a grade one instead of that being like oh no you only got a grade one you've got to reset this it's like yes i got my grade one you know that's a badge it can go in my portfolio and you know next i'll maybe think about my grade two so it turns the whole thing into a celebration and a much more emancipation Patri model of assessment rather than this like sorting hat you know method that we seem to be lumbered with now no i i absolutely agree and i mean we also sit with things like driving tests don't we you know you 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 apply for your driving test when you think you're ready to pass your driving test and obviously a lot of people apply for their driving test when they're teenagers and they wouldn't waste their, their money on you know applying well before they're ready but it's the same sort of principle i a, a few things to sort of pick up on there at Rethinking Assessment, we're not saying we want to see the abolition of exams totally or standardised tests totally. And I think there is a strong argument to say some degree of standardised testing can be really helpful in certain disciplines and at certain um, stages and to demonstrate proficiency to a certain level. Um, and I'm interested in your reflection around whether it's an infringement of human rights to force somebody to take a an exam against their will or if they don't feel ready for it. And that's a really interesting point. And I suppose what we've seen over the, you know, the decades is hundreds and thousands of candidates effectively voting with their feet and just not turning up for exams yeah. when they know that it's going to be three hours of hell because they're not ready and they're just, you know, going to um, be reminded of, of, of their deficiencies. Yeah. But absolutely, I agree with you that we should be... Um, seeing evidencing as a way of celebrating achievements as opposed to tripping people up and demonstrating failure and affecting self-esteem in that way. Um, the, I, I'm not sure that, that I feel comfortable about the idea of age not stage or stage not age classing and grouping and going back to sort of the beginning of our conversation what a detrimental effect I personally felt it had on me being in a class with children who were you know a year older than me. Ideally, I think in most cases, for the majority of school learning, we should try to keep children with their chronological peers. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't have some children in a class being entered for standardised tests or levels like music exams at, at different points. And I always think it's I've always thought it's really um dangerous to effectively say, you know, the norm, the usual um, time of taking GCSEs is at the age of 16. And if you somehow take one a year later or two years later, you know, it's almost seemed to kind of not count the same because, oh, well, you know, he was two years older when he took that. Or um, And sometimes people being a bit um, dismissive of adults sitting in the exam hall taking a GCSE French, you know, along with a group of 16-year-olds. We need to get away from that, definitely. 
But is is that not the case because it's sort of rare now? So be like you were, I assume, like the only child at your school who was moved up a year, or one of the very few that that had happened to. Yeah. And certainly, yeah. you know, in the cases where children have been held back a year, you can see the the profound, you know, like yeah. eth- ethical questions around that. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if it would be a, if it would if it would maintain that sort of social stigma if it became more widespread and normalised. Mm. And you know, for, like so, when you go yeah, for your when you go for your music lesson, people are often you know in sitting in the waiting room with a twelve year old and a seven year old and a seventy year old, and they're yeah. waiting and and they don't yeah. think that there's, I don't think that there's any judgments there. They just think, oh, this is interesting, you know. I mean, I, I'm not saying that stage not age is definitely the way to go, but if we don't if we don't embrace some sort of flexibility then it's going to be hard. Like, For example, like mixed ability maths teaching. There are some teachers, there's somebody called Helen Hindle who I used to work with who's fascinating and she's really, really good at mixed ability maths teaching. Uh, but it's hard to do uh, to be able to teach across a range. So you could, you know, you could envisage, a, you know, a maths room where there's some kids are on, you know, the grade four paper and some of them are on the grade one yeah. or two. Um, but it's a lot harder to do that. And I think that it's going to make it harder to scale at, you know, and and maybe if if so, I think that it generally, as a rule of thumb, we need greater flexibility in the school system. And so, if school A wants to have a little bit of stage, not age, and maybe just you know, like, like within boundaries, so maybe you know, years seven, eight, and nine are sort of grouped together, and maybe you know, eight, nine, and ten in, yeah. in some senses, yeah. and so on. Um, maybe we should just allow each school to determine what that looks like you know and if some of them just want to go down the mixed ability Helen Hindle route then that should be open to them as well but I, I generally yeah, think I, that we need something that's much more like a divergent system at the moment we've got this convergent bottleneck through which all must pass at the same chronological age and that seems to be a, a, a great unfairness for example like just to take the issue of summer born children for example who we know are much more likely to be diagnosed with having special educational needs are much more likely to underperform in their exams, and that's brutal. You know, that's like that's not that's not cool, and that's something that happens because of the chronological age system. So I think that that should be open open for scrutiny. Yeah, and we know that summer borns are far more prevalent in lower retaining sets where setting is by attainment. Um, I I absolutely agree. We need a healthy mix. And at, at Isaac Newton, I was really proud of the fact that our enrichment classes were very often open to children of all ages um, so if you took part in an after school Irish dancing class you know you might have your music teacher and a year 13 and a year 12 and a year four you know all in the same group and that was great fun and absolutely enriched and I think just as I was very comfortable that some classes were mixed attainment and some were set by attainment I think some mixed age and some aged classes is a lovely balance. Mm, yes okay Thank you. I'm going to really look forward. So, so is there a sort? Is there a shape? Just, just before we move on, on to this rethinking assessment um, group, um, is that what you would call it? A group? It's a yeah, sort of a movement, a group, a pressure group. Yeah. Yeah. And so, what's the plan? Or is that is that not in the public domain yet? <laughs> no, it very much is in the public domain. And if you go onto the website, it, it shows how these two working groups are going through a number of phases and stages. And by the summer, we'll be reporting back on their findings. Um, but the advisory group is sort of following the work of both of the working groups. And I think ultimately will determine how the progress and the work um, is, is disseminated and published. 
I think our, our feeling is that we want to do something rather different from the traditional sort of um, report, uh, advisory report that sometimes comes out of um, pressure groups that are advocating for change. Um, and that we we want to be trialling in a slightly more expansive way, different ideas and different systems. Mm, yes, yeah. Well, I will watch this space with, with keen interest. Okay, let's move on to the third area that you want to to examine, and this links back to what you were talking about earlier about your work in Tower Hamlets and community liaison. And I'd like to start this, if I may, by quoting a piece a, a piece of writing that that you shared with me. It's just a part that really resonated with me, where you said. Um, as an NQT about to start my first teaching post, I was sent a list of the children in my tutor group, 24 year sevens. I was furnished with their first and last names and details of any who had a specific special educational need or medical condition. That was it. Over the next three years, I gradually gleaned snippets of information about them and once a year met with the parents for some of a five minute appointment if I happened to be teaching them history. I can remember clearly my awkwardness when distributing letters or messages to be passed on to parents conscious that for some of my tutees, I did not know whether they lived with their mother or father or one parent only in an extended family or with a carer. I would say things like, take this home to give to your mum and dad, hoping that this instruction applied to them. I knew nothing about where my tutees lived or how conducive their home environments were to independent learning. The role of the tutor clearly did not extend to a responsibility to facilitate out-of-school learning. So this is, I, I love the fact that we're going to talk about this because this is new territory for me. Um, this is obviously something that, that you were recognising was a challenge even as an NQT, and this is something that I really recognise. And as we talked about last week, you know, some of the children in our school would have a file. There would be, you know, you could ask to see the file on such and such a child, but we were strongly discouraged from doing so. It was like, you, you, you're not, your job is not to know about what happens. The kid is just, you know, a student of geography. As far as you're concerned, you just teach them geography and that's where it begins and ends. So I know that you have a very different way of looking at this and I'm really, really interested to see where this bit of the conversation goes. So, uh, talk me through your thinking. When did, did this? Did this? Did you start to think early on in your career there's something wrong here, or was it the community liaison stuff where you started to work in a different way and things sort of gradually pieced themselves together? How did this sort of form for you as as an agenda item, if you like? I'm sure it did develop over time, but I do remember in my first teaching post feeling that I somehow, you know, have my hands tied behind my back because there were key pieces of information about the children in my care that I would stumble across by accident and then suddenly, you know, everything would would drop into place and I'd understand why they'd be behaving in a particular way or why they were finding it difficult to get their homework in on time. And just thinking how ridiculous it was that we weren't furnished with all of the background information, you know, hard and soft data that would make it so much better for us to build strong and trusted relationships with with the, the children and also with their parents and support them in a, in a more joined up and holistic way. Um, and there have been various times, you know, through my teaching career when I've, you know, realised that key information 
um, was shared too late. And sometimes information that wouldn't necessarily be considered to be key, but was really important for a particular aspect of unlocking a barrier that that young person might have. But I think here as well, the more I got to understand how primary education works, the more I realised that at secondary, we don't employ a lot of the techniques that um, primary colleagues do. And, you know, for a long time, I think it's been relatively standard practice for children to have a home visit before starting um, nursery or reception. But very, very few schools in the country still do home visits before children start secondary school. And in my setup year, I visited a couple of schools that did employ that practice at secondary and was convinced that there was enough benefit to trialling that, that it was worth spending what is a considerable time investment in, in um, deploying visits to, to every home. And we had 180 children in each year group at Isaac Newton. But we decided from the outset that we would invest in a home visit before every child started at the school. So between the sort of May time when the, the places were allocated and the end of the summer term, every year we would visit every family after school or on a Saturday morning um, for about half an hour to 45 minutes just to really get to know the learner and, and the people that they lived with. Um, and mm. in the first year, when we didn't have a staff because we'd obviously appointed people who wouldn't be leaving their job until the end of the summer term and would be starting with us fresh faced in September. Um, it, we literally did 180 visits between predominantly myself and the, the vice principal uh, with um, my PA and the business manager picking up a few, but I did about 90 home visits that year. Can I, and, can I ask what, what your experience was of, of, the, of the, that? Because it's full on, isn't it, to go into somebody's home and like all of society is represented in the school system. And I imagine that you go into many, you know, a wide variety of people's homes. And also, I wonder about the sort of the the dimension of it that is, you know, you're partly there to be in a supportive role, but you're also partly sort of finding out what's going on. And, and were people sort of ever defensive or did they feel that you were sort of prying or that you were sort of judging them in some way? So that was my worry. Um, and I anticipated that we would have a number of families who would say, you know, we really don't feel comfortable with this or we don't want it. But in all the years that I was... Um, at Isaac Newton, and we were doing home visits 180 a year in secondary and then 90 a year in primary for seven years. I think I could count on one hand the number of families that said, please, can we have the visit at a neutral place or could we come into school to have the conversation rather than have the home visit? And that was always an option if we needed it. Right. Um, but literally, you know, four or five occasions did that happen over seven years with, you know, multiple hundreds of home visits happening um, over that time. Most people thought it was absolutely brilliant. They were so excited. They felt so sort of honoured and so flattered and so optimistic at the thought that somebody from the school was investing time in their evening or their weekend to come to get to know them and to build that relationship before the child started. Um, and, and one of the big problems that we had was that uh, we'd often arrive at a, a home and however modest it was, uh, there'd always be some food laid out or some drinks or, you know, and, and if we were doing maybe four or five back to back visits in one evening, we'd have to learn to really sort of pace ourselves <laughs> because otherwise the first thing you'd be asking when you went into a home is, can I use your loo, which is not necessarily sort of what you want to be doing. Um, and I, I could have put on about a stone, I think, over each of those summer periods, even though I was walking between the homes. Um, but I can remember in the book I write about one really lovely memory where I can remember turning into a street 
of terraced houses uh, down which uh, I was heading for, for a house sort of midway down the street and the little boy who I was visiting was standing on the corner of the street and as soon as he saw me he went legging it down the road to his house saying she's coming oh. you know and the whole family were out there at the front of the house to sort of welcome me as I was royalty um, <laughs> that, that was a bit of an exception but by and large I, we had the most fantastic conversations because you know, in the comfort and security of your own home, a child can tell you what they're worried about, what their fears are. You know, I've heard that this happens to you when you go to big school. What will happen if I need to go to the toilet in a lesson? What if I get lost and I'm late for a class? You know, all the sorts of questions that I really needed the answers to when I was that kid wandering around the school with a note not yeah, knowing where I was going. Yeah. Um, and having somebody who can reassure you and can answer what might seem like daft questions that you wouldn't ask if your secondary teacher came to visit you in the primary school, as often happens, you know, and you can ask questions in front of your class, but you're not going to put your hand up and say, you know, will somebody really flush my head down the toilet or, or whatever. Um, the opportunity to see inside people's homes and see the learning environments um, that they're that they have and so I had some really humbling experiences of you know people who were living in in real poverty but homes that were just full of um, of visual representations of how important education was so I can remember visiting a lad who um, lived in a, a two-room flat and the room that the visit happened in was um, the parents' bedroom where the, the bed folded down into a sofa that we sat on to do the meeting and the, the room encompassed the kitchen which was just a, a fridge with a kettle on top but everywhere around the walls were plastered um, the, the child's drawings, writings, school certificates, rosettes. So you could just tell that this family absolutely valued education and would work with the school, um, you know, to the end of their days and totally supported the ethos and the culture. And um, it was an incredibly inspiring family to work with. Um, mm. And then occasionally I'd visit homes where was really clear that um, the child, you know, wasn't prioritised or their, you know, the, the support structures that you'd hope would be in place for every youngster weren't there on that occasion. And that was so invaluable to have that evidence, to be able to go back to school and say to that youngster's tutor, you're really going to need to, you know, be almost the surrogate parent for this youngster. And, you know, you'll have to have their back because they won't have someone having their back at home necessarily. Um, so it was really immensely valuable. But more than anything, just investing time in building up that relationship and a sense of trust so that the school felt uh, so that, that the parents felt secure that the school wanted to work with them in, in true partnership and with true engagement. And so that, you know, if there came a time, as there does in most people's um, education, where an adult needs to make a phone call home to say, actually, your child's you know, messed up today or something's gone wrong or we need to talk about a problem. It wasn't a case that the first communication the family had with school was to hear a negative. Um, but, you know, that negative could be um, nuanced and um, and placed within a, a kind of safe and uh, relationship built on respect and mutual trust and, and, and a positive relationship that pre-existed. Yes, yeah. So, so for me, it's a massively sensible investment of time because, you know, you invest 45 minutes up front in getting to know a family in order to save yourself hours and hours and hours of 
you know, poorly landed communications or missed opportunities to work with a family or, you know, something blowing up and because somebody puts their foot in it and, um, you know, misaddresses an adult in, in a relationship because they don't know, you know, who the child's living with or whatever. Mm. I'm I'm totally sold on it. I, th- I can see the value of it and just on so many levels of what you're talking about. So in terms of that time investment, if there's any head teachers who are listening to this who are thinking, okay, what does this actually involve? So you were saying there's 180 visits a year. So is that usually for the year six is going into year seven? So that yeah. So for each year you just do one visit at that at that time period. And yeah. so what would it take in terms of time commitment? And was it? It sounds like you were doing about half of them. When was it another senior leader? So. I mean, one thing that people often say to me is, is it wise to do a home visit on your own? Um, and I know of quite a few schools. And in fact, at my school, we would always offer for if, you know, if an adult wanted to do home visits. So we'd encourage as many staff as possible to get involved in the home visit program. And lots of them did. And this was operational staff as well as teaching staff. But we would always say, if you feel more comfortable going with um, another member of staff, do them in pairs. Um, and certainly nobody would go and do a visit on their own if they hadn't previously shadowed somebody else leading the visit. So they got a sense of how to conduct the conversation and what um, information to gather and um, you know where the dialogue should go and how to deal with you know any potential difficulties that happened in the conversation, though they were incredibly rare. Um, but in the early days, I have to say, you know, I did um, tend to do the visits on my own. I'm not necessarily advocating that, although always um, we would gather information from the primary school in advance and just check that there were no, you know, no issues that would suggest that it wasn't a sensible or safe thing to do. Yeah. Um, and we'd always, you know, check in with each other uh, at the end of, of the sessions and just check that they'd gone well. And so would this mainly happen during that summer summer holiday between year six to seven, just in terms of how did, how did this wrap around the school, the school year or the school day? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously people can and do organise these in, in different ways and some schools do them during the school day, although my personal feeling is that's problematic because you're you're then you know asking your child to miss some learning from school and that sends slightly mixed messages about you know it's important to be at school every day but it's okay to be at home for a home visit um so we would do ours after school or on saturday mornings through the, the summer term really once children knew that they were coming to us as their secondary choice and um, before the end of term but occasionally if children arrived um, or allocated the school as late entrance um we'd we do them during the summer holiday. But the idea was that you'd form that relationship with the home and you'd put in place um, structures to support their continual learning through the summer. Um, We would take um, uh, sort of reading for them to engage in. We always gave a present of a book to read over the summer. We'd give them a a summer sort of project activity to engage in and talk through how they could um, how they could tackle that and uh, and what the sort of output of that might be. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I yeah. As, as I say, I'm sold on it. It's great. So let's let's talk about this idea more widely of teachers as facilitators of out of school learning. What does that mean for you? Home visits is a part of it, but what else? What else does this involve? So it. It involves an acceptance of the fact that the number of hours that children spend in school are a fraction of their of their waking hours. Um, when you add in weekends and holidays and evenings and um, and so on, and that we as influencers obviously have an opportunity in the six seven hours of the school day to have a big influence, but there are so many other. Um, 
factors and individuals influencing a child's attitude to education and their um, capacity to be learning continually outside of school hours and, and away from the bricks and mortar school building. And we're never going to support children to make massive strides in their learning and demonstrable impact if we if we narrow our focus just on what happens in you know the few hours of the taught curriculum, which is why enriching opportunities and extracurricular activities and pre-learning and uh, weekend and holiday clubs and societies and trips and visits are so important. But equally, you know, teachers can't work 24 hours a day. And, you know, it worries me at the moment that um, the, the government are talking about extending term times, extending school days, having teachers, you know, after the year that we've just faced teaching through the summer holidays. We, we have to protect our, our teachers and our leaders and we have to give them downtime and space and time for rethinking and planning and preparation and marking, you know, the, we can't be teaching every hour um, that there is. And actually, that's counterproductive because that creates a dependency model. What we need to be doing through the hours that we have with young people is teaching them to be their own teachers, doing ourselves out of a job, um, giving them the skills to be self-regulating and self-starting and self-directing um, learners and to have the wherewithal to work out where they're less effective as independent learners and who they could be collaborating with, which of their mates and friends and peers would be a good person to partner up with for an English essay or a science experiment or to practice their trombone or to write a poem with. And that would be different people for each of those scenarios and getting them to understand that organising themselves into little study groups or um, in, in, to have a study buddy you can pick up the phone to in the evening when you get stuck on your maths problems or call up in a Zoom call, Zoom call it is a really effective way to learn and, and helping our, our youngsters to plan and organise and prioritise their learning and chunk up their assignments into manageable bite sizes so that they don't get completely flawed when something like a global pandemic strikes and suddenly school as a building is shut and you're you're on your own as as many children were for quite significant numbers of hours particularly during lockdown 1 when you know schools hadn't for understandable reasons got their remote learning provision up and running in quite the same sophisticated way that the majority have now and i think schools that before the pandemic had seen the role of educators, and by educators I mean everybody, not just teachers, but you know, the lab technicians and the, the office staff and the catering team as facilitators of out of school learning. I think it was the children in those schools who really thrived um, during lockdown and are continuing to thrive now and have been able to set themselves learning challenges and have gone online and done virtual museum tours and have um, got involved with charities and social enterprises and have baked cakes and have uh, taken up new hobbies and have really made the most of organising every minute of the day so that they're continually learning and thriving. And some of them even kind of saying, oh, I'm not sure, you know, I want to come back to a serried timetable day because I'm really enjoying, you know, structuring my own learning in a, in a way that is suiting me at this stage of my life and my development and 
my interests. I've heard a lot of that happening during the pandemic. Uh, parents as well. There was a blog recently this week that a child said something like, when, when we got to Easter, so it was lockdown last year, that's when we switched to fun learning. And then we had 9,000 <laughs> tons of fun. And they just, they associate work with you know, like school. And that, that the very word work, you know, Guy Claxton talks about this. That yeah. schools talk about this word work all the time. And work is like an annoying thing, isn't it? I remember there yeah, was a, a toxic concept. Yeah, it's just like something that you have to do to, to achieve some end. I remember there was a girl who I used to teach and she used to, her quiet act of rebellion was just to write work in every every lesson of every day for as the title. She would just write the word work and then the date. I, I love that. Um, so Whereas oh, learning has a totally different connotation to it, doesn't it? Yeah. So I can remember Guy coming to visit um, my new school building before it had opened. And we didn't have one staff room. We had a series of um, team rooms, staff rooms. And whoever had built the school had um, labelled them work rooms. And he, he came across the first one. He said, oh, God, I wouldn't want to be sort of based in one of those. That sounds <laughs> terrible. It sounds a bit like a kind of workhouse. Yeah. So from that day onwards, we, we changed the name to Learning Rooms. And, and that just had a completely different feel to it. This is somewhere where you go with other adults to learn from and with each other. Yeah, language is so important. OK, so, so when you were talking about teachers as out-of-school facilitators of learning, you were talking about, you know, at boarding school, they have these evening study groups and so on. I thought that you might have been suggesting that we were, you know, uh, that teachers should be facilitating those. And I was envisaging, you know, unions up in arms and people talking about workload. So you're not talking about that. It sounds like it's come much more full circle to where we started this. It's, this is an, an aspect of learning to learn. So, for example, a school could help each student to create an out-of-school learning plan, say, that includes some independent study time and some revision time and to think carefully about where they study and when they study and so on and what they do and how they do it. And that you then sort of review that regularly and just sort of see how it's going. Is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? Absolutely. And, you know, in, in its purest form, I think each learner would have a, an adult who was their champion, their associate, their buddy, their sort of learning coach. Um, and they would meet with them regularly, um, could be, you know, via Zoom and could be face to face just to talk about how their learning's going and, and to help them to develop their better cognitive muscles, if you like. Um, and we were, we were having an interesting discussion in the Rethinking Assessment Group yesterday around how it is that an early years teacher can get a really holistic sense of um, a child in their class's achievement. And how in some ways it's easier because they have 30 children who they spend all day with every day, you know, for a year. So they really get to know those children um, in, in depth and detail and how it's harder if you're a history teacher at Key Stage 4 and you just see, you know, a child for three hours a week and you're just one of a myriad of people who get a glimpse into their their learning journey. But if every secondary school attributed an adult, and it wouldn't need to be a teacher, to every learner who was their learning coach and and met with them periodically so that the youngster could articulate and provide evidence of how their learning was going in a multitude of different ways from their knowledge and understanding to their um, to their learning dispositions, to their character development, etc. Then they would effectively support them to become increasingly independent, increasingly self-regulating for, you know, their, their learning behaviours to become more ingrained and more natural and more habitual and uh, less dependent on other people prodding them to start and keep going and, and not give up. Um, I, I just see that that would be such a sensible way of 
supporting them to then be ready for the transition into work or apprenticeship or higher education at the age of 18. Yeah. And and like I said, so many of so many just really struggle. We talk a lot about the transition at year six, seven, the transition out of the other end. It seems like often we, we aren't really thinking at all about that. We just get them to the point of their exam day and then we go, good luck with the rest of your life sort of thing. And we need to think a lot more carefully about that bit of transition, which is so much more precarious. Um, well, that's... And, and assessing and measuring schools on how well their children develop after school. You know, that the sort of looking at destination data and using destination data and outcomes to assess the success of a school rather than just examination results is really important, isn't it? Yeah, of course. I love that because it brings us full circle. We started talking about learning to learn and essentially this is a learning to learn solution you know to this to this question of how can we facilitate out of school learning it's so sensible I've, I can't believe that I've never really thought about this before it seems like such a glaring have you have you come across is this just a you thing are, are there other people who are banging this drum or is this something that you no, I bet sort of, you have thought about this before no no really not like I've like not really in terms of just like that idea of having an out of school learning plan for each kid I mean we would like we would do we would sort of ask them to set their own homework sometimes and they would they would sort of take ownership over that but no I, I wouldn't say that we thought about it in any way the detail that you have and it seems like such a glaring omission that's actually not that difficult to so especially now that technology has enabled you know even five years ago like you know a skype call like this the quality would be juddery and it would make for a unpleasant sounding podcast and now you know the tech is there um and it, and it overcomes that oracy thing of kids being stuck in their rooms if they're speaking with their friends, you know, about social stuff as well as about learning. Um, I love it. I absolutely love it. And you could think about, you know, how to group children together and you could make recommendations for, for, for how children could group themselves so that they can be accessing a range of support. Um, and, and, the, and it's sort of like this idea of accountability partners, I think, is so important that you yeah. know, working in a group, I think part of the, the value of it is just that you've said something out loud to your peers that you're going to do and you don't want to be the one who sort of doesn't have something good to say the next time you meet and so it sort of spurs you on and that's uh, a way that we can harness the the sort of because we know that peer relations are all important aren't they among young people and often that can be used in a detrimental way for example you know like gang life Uh, but you can harness those social bonds for, for for positive change so um i love it it's very very smart um, and I've really enjoyed speaking with you and I really enjoyed reading all the, the stuff that you've, you've written uh, over the years that you sent me through. Uh, you're, you're both in the way that you speak and the way that you write about these issues. It's so clear that you've thought really hard about this over you know, a long period of time. And you're, the way that you explain these ideas, um, you're a very gifted communicator, I think. You really, you really sort of are able to relay them in a way that are easy to understand. And so I'm That's re- not a gift. That's practice, James. yes indeed okay you've learned that lesson so so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me i'm really looking forward to the book coming out uh, and to seeing these rethinking assessment reports is there anything else that's uh, coming up in the future that you're looking forward to or is there anything else that you would like to to share with our listeners or to ask of our listeners so um 
I would love our listeners to click into the Rethinking Assessment website and see what they think of it and to give some honest and candid feedback. Um, I've really enjoyed the last couple of hours. It's been an absolute pleasure to to talk to you, James. And I followed your work with interest and you get a mention in my book as well. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much indeed. Good stuff. Well, uh, all the best for the future. Um, and I will see you again on this podcast, no doubt, when we've got uh, more to talk about. Thanks very much. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.